Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Radio Estros, episode 30, King in the North. Spoilers all books! Hello, and welcome to another episode of Radio Estros. I'm Lady Guinevere in Boston. And I'm Yoke Boy in England. And today we're back with the second of two episodes on Rob Stark. We really hope that you enjoyed our very close look at Rob in part one. And we've prepared a very long and deep look at the latter half of Rob's story here. While it's preferable that you've listened to that first part, I think you'll be okay and able to follow this episode if you haven't. Okay, Lady Gwynne, what have we got lined up today? Well, today in an episode that has once again broken our record for longest ever, we'll begin by looking at the aftermath of Rob's crowning as King in the North as he journeys into the Riverlands with the Northern Host ready for war. Then we'll consider just what was going wrong for Rob as his victories on the field were not reflected by his campaign off it. The mood grows decidedly more ominous when Rob agrees to make amends with Walder Frey. And the third section today is called To the Crossing. And from there, we'll retrace Rob's final moves as he and his men are ambushed at the Red Wedding, a defining moment in a Song of Ice and Fire canon. We'll be reliving the treachery, the horror, and the trail of clues that together made this one of the memorable moments in fantasy literature history. Yes, it is that. Then we'll be brushing ourselves down and investigating a selection of Rob Stark-related theories from the plausible to the desperately wishful, all served, of course, with a generous coating of crackpot tinfoil. Yeah, we'll discuss if Jane Westerling could be pregnant, if Robert Strong has something of Rob's behind his visor, if Grey Wind or Reynald Westerling could have somehow survived the Red Wedding, or if Rob could have died twice on that fateful evening. We'll also speculate what Lady Stoneheart might have in store for that old rogue, Walder Frey. And speaking of Freys, we have a pseudo-advert from Frey, Frey, Frey and Frey wedding and party planners, so listen out for that, before we take one final look over Rob's legacy. 
Today will largely be character focused and will lead nicely into an upcoming episode or two concerning the War of the Five Kings. And we're going to leave the heavier military analysis for those episodes. Okay, and before we start today's mammoth episode, we wanted to say that we aim to bring you high-quality presentations on A Song of Ice and Fire so we can explore the depths of the books and characters. If you'd like to show your appreciation, you can support us on Patreon. Pledges are per episode, so you reward us when we release a full episode, and for $3, you now get access to those episodes a day before the public, and that is a brand new incentive. Yeah, and you also get access to extra content. At the moment, we have a full-length episode on Varamir, as well as other perks, and that's all at the $3 per episode tier. So find Radio Westeros on Patreon to not only help us, but also to earn a variety of rewards depending on your pledge. And on the subject of patrons, we want to say a sincere thank you to patrons of all levels and give special shout-outs to our Flaming Lightbringer patron, TJ Harrington, to our Dragonsteel patrons, John Wargarian and Peter, and our Palest Milk Glass patrons, Rosa, Rory, Ashley, Laura, Sister Winter, and Harry Krishna. Thanks a lot, guys. We're humbled by your support and your belief in us. And now, without any further ado, let's get started with Part 2 of Rob Stark. Hold on to your hats. This could be a rough ride. King Joffrey and the Queen Regent must renounce all claims to dominion over the North. Henceforth, we are no part of their realm, but a free and independent kingdom as of old. Our domain shall include all the stark lands north of the Neck, and in addition, the lands watered by the River Trident and its vassal streams, bounded by the Golden Tooth to the west and the Mountains of the Moon in the east. So, the newly proclaimed King in the North there, whose realm was now to include, quote, the lands watered by the River Trident and its vassal streams, bounded by the Golden Tooth to the west, and the Mountains of the Moon in the east. In other words, the Riverlands. Rob certainly had his work cut out for him. He had raised his banners in rebellion against the Crown to save his father and sisters, and now, with the news of Ned's death and his victory at Whispering Wood, Rob found himself holding not only Jamie Lannister, but several other valuable Lannister hostages, which would seem to put him in an excellent position to bargain from. But in declaring himself king of what appears to be more than half the realm in terms of area, Rob made a bold move that was unlikely to be meekly accepted by the Lannisters at the moment of their ascendancy. Yeah, not likely. And interesting to note that only moments before his laws declared him their king, Rob had echoed Ned's words about Renly not having a legal claim to the throne. Not that Rob was claiming the Iron Throne, but certainly taking a huge portion of the realm away from whomever did so would not go unchallenged. And so began the War of the Five Kings, with Stark and Lannister facing off in the Riverlands, the Baratheon brothers with each other in the south, and Balon Greyjoy as yet undeclared, lurking on the periphery awaiting his opportunity. 
As we've mentioned, we'll be going to much greater depth on the War of the Five Kings in our next episode. So here we'll be keeping the focus tightly on Rob himself, on his development, his strategies and missteps, and his legacy. And in this segment, we're going to explore the events of the Clash of Kings when Rob's early success seemed to have him on the brink of outfoxing the old fox, Tywin Lannister himself. We begin with the newly crowned king waiting to receive the prisoner Cleos Frey. As Cat watches her son fiddling with his crown, an iron and bronze replica of the ancient crown of the kings of winter, her train of thought, it's no easy thing to wear a crown, is almost certainly a nod by George to Shakespeare's Henry IV Part II, where the king thinks to himself, uneasy lies the head that wears the crown. And it's definitely no easy thing for a boy of 15 to bear this burden. But Rob seems to constantly surprise his mother, and perhaps the reader, with his judgement and his resemblance to his father. King Rob receives Sir Cleos, as he had done his cousin Tyrion not long before, with bare steel upon his knees. Only this time, in addition to having implications about the lack of guess right, it seems to also be a warning of sorts to keep faith with the code of war, which compels the hostage sent as a messenger to afterwards return and submit to captivity to preserve his own and his family's honour. And it turns out the purpose of this audience is to give Sir Cleos a message to bear to his cousin the Queen in King's Landing. Rob's terms of peace are the terms of a treaty between equals, not the submission of a rebellious lord to the crown in exchange for pardon or concessions. Rob has crossed a line that he has no intention of retreating from, and while his mother is concerned that the offer of exchanging the squires Tyon Frey and Willem Lannister for Arya and Sansa will prove not good enough, others are upset with even the idea of offering terms to the Lannisters. Yeah, when Rob declared that he would offer peace to the Lannisters if they met his terms, Lord Rickard Carstark stormed from the hall, a tangible warning that there would be trouble with Lord Rickard over the matter of vengeance for his sons. And though the terms offered are deemed not sweet enough by his mother, Rob clearly thinks he is offering as much as his lords will accept. He offers to trade the Lannister boys for his sisters and demands the release of the hostages from the Green Fork in exchange for all the others held by his men, save Jamie Lannister alone, who would continue to be held for his father's good behaviour. But above all, requiring Lord Tywin to withdraw from his territory, requesting more hostages as surety for the terms of treaty, and demanding recognition of the territories he was claiming as a sovereign nation were aggressive terms, almost sure to be rejected. And as Cap points out, Cersei and Tywin would want Jaime, and Rob insists that he could not exchange Jaime, his lords wouldn't accept it. Perhaps for Ned, he says, and the unspoken words, but not for the girls, leads to harsh words from his mother. His confidence in his ability to offer battle if his terms are rejected extends beyond the audience chamber to a private meeting with his mother and his uncle Edmure. 
And it's there, too, that we see Rob's resolve to send Theon to treat with Lord Balon for the use of his longships. Yeah, as we mentioned in our Catelyn and Theon episodes, it seems that while Rob had carefully followed his father's orders regarding fortifying Moat Caelin and White Harbour, in the matter of Theon Greyjoy, he allowed his decision-making to be swayed by his personal relationship with his foster brother. Kat's observation of Theon during the War Council reveal not only her reservations about him, but also perhaps offer a window of foreshadowing to his intentions. She studied Theon Greyjoy's sly smile, wondering what it meant. That young man had a way of looking as though he knew some secret jest that only he was privy to. Catelyn had never liked it. And we have to wonder at his sly smile, coupled with the revelation a few pages later that Rob had already made up his mind to send Theon to treat with his own father. Was Theon even then plotting the self-centered course that would ultimately lead him into the blind alley of betrayal? We've noted when Rob's decisions are modeled after Ned's, and so, in fairness, we have to note when they diverge. This is not a choice Ned would have made, and the decision, as we know, would have fateful consequences for everyone involved, and more. But the scene between Rob and Kat following the audience with Sir Cleos is important, as it also represents a shift in Rob's arc. Right, to this point, we've seen Rob as a boy becoming a man, bearing the weight of the burden life has laid on his shoulders with the help and advice of his mother, who had taken a very sensitive tack in dispensing that advice. But following Ned's death and Rob's acclamation as king, we see him start to take advice from others more, being more dismissive of his mother, who, in the matter of Theon Greyjoy, must have felt unable to take a stand and remind Rob of his father's wishes. Yeah, it seems like at that moment, Kat was more worried about her daughters in King's Landing, and who can blame her, and her concerns that Rob would be swayed by his lords to seek vengeance for the atrocities being committed in the Riverlands by Lannister units by marching on Tywin Lannister at the stronghold of Harrenhal. Her uncle, the Blackfish, brings the news that Sir Stafford Lannister is raising a new host in the Westerlands, and he illustrates the danger to the army of the Riverlands of being trapped between two enemies when he says, Make no mistake, Lord Tywin is not the Kingslayer. He will not rush in heedless. He will wait patiently for Sir Stafford to march before he stirs from behind the walls of Harrenhal. But is Catelyn's reply... Unless he must leave Harrenhal to face some other threat, that is the beginning of a daring plan that would send Kat herself deep into the south and Rob into the west. Quote, King Renly, she tells her uncle, will want what kings always want, homage. And it's Rob's own decision to send Kat as he tells her, I cannot go myself. Your father's too ill. The blackfish is my eyes and ears. I dare not lose him. Your brother, I need to hold River Run when we march. Yeah, and although Rob cagely declines to tell her where he's marching, only saying, I said nothing of Harrenhal, 
it seems he's taken the germ of his mother's idea and decided once again that unconventional tactics are the way to defeat Tywin Lannister. While Cat counsels patience of a sort akin to that of Tywin himself, Rob opts for a bold move that would not only draw Tywin from his impenetrable base, but strike at the heart of Tywin's homeland. While Cat is off south dealing with the Baratheons, Rob will march into the lion's den and destroy the nascent army that Lord Tywin clearly hoped would function as one half of a pincer maneuver. And that he succeeds at that is made clear in a Sansa chapter some time later, when she's summoned before Joffrey to answer for her brother's deeds. Lancel Lannister informs her, Your brother fell upon Sir Stafford Lannister with an army of wargs, not three days' ride from Lannisport. Thousands of good men were butchered as they slept without the chance to lift sword. After the slaughter, the Northmen feasted on the flesh of the slain. And in the aftermath of this revelation, which Sansa of course denies all knowledge and responsibility of, repeatedly calling her own brother a traitor, she's beaten by Sir Boros and Sir Merin, and rescued only by the intervention of Tyrion Lannister. It's Tyrion who later gives her a more truthful version of events. You have a right to know why Joffrey was so wroth. Six nights gone, your brother fell upon my uncle Stafford and camped with his host at a village called Oxcross, not three days' ride from Casterly Rock. Your northerners won a crushing victory. We received word only this morning. Again, Sansa calls her brother a traitor, although now her inner thoughts reveal a certain hope and faith in Rob. Rob will kill you all, she thought, exulting. What's interesting is that the scene with Joffrey marks a clear connection being made between Starks and Wargs, something which apparently started in the aftermath of Whispering Wood, with Grey Wind's involvement at Rob's side, and has been fanned by Rob's string of victories, in which Grey Wind continued to play a really prominent role. Yeah, Tyrion, who has some experience with Starks and their direwolves, goes on to explain the Westerner's defeat to Sansa. Your brother had his direwolf with him, but I suspect that's as far as it went. The Northmen crept into my uncle's camp and cut his horse lines, and Lord Stark sent his wolf among them. Even war-trained destriers went mad. Knights were trampled to death in their pavilions, and the rabble woke in terror and fled, casting aside their weapons to run the faster. Sir Stafford was slain as he chased after a horse. Lord Rickard Carstark drove a lance through his chest. Sir Rupert Brax is also dead, along with Sir Lyman Vickery, Lord Craycall, and Lord Jast. Half a hundred more have been taken captive, including Jast's sons and my nephew Martin Lannister. Those who survived are spreading wild tales and swearing that the old gods of the North march with your brother. My mutton-headed uncle had not even troubled to post sentries, it would seem. His host was raw apprentice boys, miners, field hands, fisherfolk, the sweepings of Lannisport. The only mystery is how your brother reached him. Our forces still hold the stronghold at the Golden Tooth, and they swear he did not pass. And we later learn that Grey Wind played an important role in leading Rob's army around the Golden Tooth unseen. When Martin Rivers tells Catelyn and her escort... He slipped around it in the night. 
He said the direwolf showed him the way, that grey wind of his. The beast sniffed out a goat track that wound down a defile and up along beneath a ridge, a crooked and stony way, yet wide enough for men riding single file. The Lannisters in their watchtowers got not so much a glimpse of them. And his follow-up comment about the rumour that Rob had fed Sir Stafford Lannister's heart to his wolf underlines how these stories perpetuate themselves even among his own men. Yeah, but there's clearly a connection between the boy and the wolf, and this discovery of the way around the Golden Tooth seems like evidence of that connection being mystical or telepathic, remembering that George says that all the Stark children are wargs. And as Rob gained more victories with the wolf at his side, it seems only natural that stories began to circulate publicly about sorcery or a supernatural element being at play. Yeah, it's like fake news, isn't it? Anyway, as A Clash of Kings winds down, it seems like Rob Stark is poised for victory and things look somewhat bleak for the Lannisters, with Jaime captive at Riverrun and enemy forces now ranging deep inside the Westerlands. Rob's great victory at Oxcross was followed by raiding the coast, the farmlands and the gold mines of the Westerlands, and is succeeded in drawing Tywin out of Harrenhal. Unfortunately, the gambit was destined to fail on two counts. First was the series of events that unfolded in the south with Catelyn as witness. Yeah, in the meantime, Cat had arrived at Bitterbridge to find Renly's enormous army camped there, enjoying a tourney. At the feast that followed, she observed the many young men who made up Renly's entourage with sadness, telling Lord Rowan, war will make them old. When he questioned her statement, pointing out their youth and vigor and chance of success, it says she replied sadly, because it will not last, because they are the nights of summer and winter is coming. And of course, we can't help contrasting her view of these nights of summer with Rob, whom she had acerbically told Lord Randall Tarley was warring, not playing at tourney. As much confidence as she placed in her son, the correlation to his own youth couldn't have escaped her, and might have contributed to her sadness in that moment as much as her own experience of war in young adulthood did. Yeah, she must have been thinking along those lines, and then to follow up with the stark words, winter is coming, really proves what a different outlook the Northerners have. Most house words are boastful or threatening slogans about their own strength or qualities. Hear me roar, ours is the fury, growing strong, first in battle. Only House Stark seems to offer a warning about the future, a cautionary statement that has nothing to do with the members of the house itself, unless in speaking of their preparedness for disaster. Yes, winter is coming. Okay, and then when Catelyn finally meets privately with Renly, he speaks about his army and his plans, and about Ned and the events in King's Landing surrounding Robert's death. Catelyn is unsurprised that Ned wouldn't support Renly and questions him about his elder brother Stannis. Renly dismisses Stannis's superior claim with a question. Tell me... What right did my brother Robert 
ever have to the Iron Throne. But it continues. He did not wait for an answer. Oh, there was talk of the blood ties between Baratheon and Targaryen, of weddings a hundred years past, of second sons and elder daughters. No one but the maesters cares about any of it. Robert won the throne with his war hammer. He swept a hand across the campfires that burned from horizon to horizon. Well, there is my claim, as good as Robert's ever was. If your son supports me, as his father supported Robert, he'll not find me ungenerous. I will gladly confirm him in all his lands, titles, and honors. He can rule in Winterfell as he pleases. He can even go on calling himself King in the North if he likes, so long as he bends the knee and does me homage as his overlord. King is only a word, but fealty, loyalty, service, those I must have. Now this is interesting because we've been pointedly reminded at least twice that Ned did not support Renly's claim. And we know from his own POVs in A Game of Thrones that he believed in Stannis' claim. And yet Renly attempts here to use Robert's successful war as a justification of his rebellion, dismissing Robert's blood ties to the defeated Targaryens as playing a role in his victory. And yet it can't be denied that by all appearances, Robert did indeed have the superior claim once the main line of Targaryens had been removed. Certainly his preoccupation later in life with eliminating the last scions of that line spoke to a deep insecurity that his claim might one day be challenged. And we think it's important that the Honourable Ned Stark supported Robert and following him Stannis, showing an adherence to right and legitimacy that Renly seemed willing to dismiss. And while we don't think that Renly necessarily believed that his claim was as good as Robert's ever was, we do think he believed in his military might. When Cat hinted that Rob might be of the same opinion as his father, Renly was clear about both his intentions and his prospects. Here's the exchange. And if he will not give them to you, my lord. I mean to be king, my lady, and not of a broken kingdom. I cannot say it plainer than that. Three hundred years ago, a Stark king knelt to egg on the dragon when he saw he could not hope to prevail. That was wisdom. Your son must be wise as well. Once he joins me, this war is good as done. So, strong words there about Renly's expectations for himself and for Rob. But, on the verge of leading the largest host in the kingdom against King's Landing, Renly was distracted by his brother Stannis' siege of Storm's End. He raced south to deal with it, taking Catelyn with him, but when their meeting dissolved into hostility exacerbated by the brothers' mutual arrogance and stubbornness, Cat knew her diplomatic cause was lost. Yeah, and when she asked leave to return to the Riverlands, Renly declined and insisted she stay to observe his battle with his brother so that she could see, quote, what befalls rebels with your own eyes so your son can hear it from your own lips. So, a bit of a threat there from Renly, which, combined with Stannis' words about Rob, your son is no less a traitor than my brother here, his day will come as well, could hardly have left Cat feeling encouraged about either of the Baratheon brothers. 
But anyway, as fate would have it, Stannis and Melisandre made sure that the battle Renly wanted Cat to witness never came to pass. Cat fled north in the aftermath of Renly's death with her escort and Brienne of Tarth. And it's when she arrived in the Riverlands that she received word of Rob's victory at Oxcross and that Lord Tywin had left Harrenhal. She also observes that her brother was preparing for battle outside of Riverrun, and this is the second circumstance that would lead to the failure of Rob's gambit in the West. For Edmure's plan involved meeting Tywin in pitch battle, while at the same time ordering Helmand Tallhart to march from the Twins to join with Roose Bolton and the rest of the Northern Host to retake Harrenhal, hoping thereby to capture Tywin in a pincer such as he had planned for Rob. And when we return, we'll review the next stage of Rob's war and the series of events that led him to say to his mother, I have won every battle, yet somehow I'm losing the war. The maid came forward last and very shy. Rob took her hand. Mother, he said, I have the great honor to present to you the Lady Jane Westerling, Lord Gowan's elder daughter, and my, um, my lady wife. The first thought that flew across Catelyn's mind was, No, that cannot be. You are only a child. The second was, And besides, you've pledged another. The third was, Mother, have mercy, Rob. What have you done? So, as it turned out, Edmure was victorious over Tywin's multi-pronged attempt to cross the Riverlands and relieve his bannerman in the west, which sent him retreating back towards the Trident. But Edmure had not been informed of Rob's intent and had reckoned without the developments in the south. For while Rob had intended to draw Tywin deep into the west with his scouring of the Westerlands, and as such had ordered Edmure only to hold River Run, the Lannisters had acted quickly to secure an alliance with the Tyrells in the wake of Renly's death meaning that Tywin's retreat from his move west left him in a position to join up with the Tyrell forces and march to King's Landing to save the city following Stannis's near victory in the Battle of the Blackwater. All things we'll be looking at much more closely in our next episode. Yes, we will. Here we can focus on the contention that resulted within Rob's own family. After his return to Riverrun, Rob has a private meeting with his family, where the Blackfish reminds Edmure, You were commanded to hold Riverrun, Edmure, no more. When Edmure protested, Rob replied, Did you ever think to ask yourself why we remained in the West so long after Oxcross? Uncle, I wanted Lord Tywin to come West. And the Blackfish continued to tell of the ruined plan. We were all horsed. The Lannister host was mainly foot. 
We plan to run Lord Tywin and Merry Chase up and down the coast, then slip behind him to take up a strong defensive position athwart the Gold Road, at a place my scouts had found where the ground would have been greatly in our favour. If he had come at us there, he would have paid a grievous price. But if he did not attack, he would have been trapped in the west, a thousand leagues from where he needed to be. All the while, we would have lived off his land, instead of him living off ours. And Rob added, Lord Stannis was about to fall upon King's Landing. He might have rid us of Joffrey the Queen and the Imp in one red stroke. Then we might have been able to make a peace. And the Blackfish concluded the tale. When you stopped Lord Tywin on the Red Fork, you delayed him just long enough for riders out of Bitterbridge to reach him with word what was happening in the east. Lord Tywin turned his host at once, joined up with Mathis Rowan and Randall Tarley near the headwaters of the Blackwater, and made a forced march to Tumblers Falls, where he found Mace Tyrell and two of his sons waiting with a huge host and a fleet of barges. They floated down the river, disembarked half a day's ride from the city, and took Stannis in the rear. So while these events didn't spell the automatic defeat for Rob, they did mark the turning of the tide against him, and a missed opportunity to end his war in triumph. For with Walder Frey now left to his own devices at the Twins, without Lord Helmand Tallheart on hand to keep him honest, so to speak, and Roose Bolton on his own and in control of the greater part of the Northern Host, observing the tide turn against his liege lord from the safety of Harrenhal, and Balon Greyjoy's ambitions and resentments wreaking the havoc in the north, there had been additional developments that put the seal to Rob's fate. Right, and first of those was the betrayal of Theon Greyjoy. Sent as an ambassador to his father in an attempt to gain the Iron Fleet for Rob's cause, Theon was convinced by Balon to abandon his mission and join in the malicious plan to invade the North in Rob's absence. But even Balon didn't envision the seizure of Winterfell and the apparent murder of Bran and Rickon Stark. That was Theon's own madness, born of pride and ambition, and was a course of action that seemed in many ways to become an ever-deepening nightmare for Theon, one that he would come to regret on many levels, but none more so than when he thinks, many months later, Rob had been more a brother to Theon than any son born of Balon Greyjoy's loins, murdered at the Red Wedding, butchered by the phrase, I should have been with him. Where was I? I should have died with him. Yeah, we noted that Theon and Rob had been close, and Rob placed a great deal of trust in his foster brother in sending him to treat with Balon. And as much as Theon, in many ways, was a victim of his own pride, his betrayal must have cut Rob to the core. As Rob led his army against the crag, he took a wound and was nursed back to health by the daughter of the castle, one Jane Westerling. It was during that time he received word that Theon Greyjoy had taken Winterfell in the name of his own father, Balon, and killed Bran and Rickon in the process. 
Jane Westerling comforted Rob in his desperate grief and we learn of it in Cat's point of view. Catelyn did not need to be told what sort of comfort Jane Westling had offered her son. And you wed her the next day. He looked her in the eyes, proud and miserable all at once. It was the only honourable thing to do. She's gentle and sweet, mother. She will make me a good wife. And that statement, it was the only honourable thing to do, makes us wonder about Ned. We've noted several what-would-Ned-do moments, and not a few similarities between the former Lord of Winterfell and his son. So we've given some thought to what Ned might have done here. He was, after all, renowned for his honour, so if anyone could tell Rob what the honourable thing to do was, it would be his father, right? And of course, the first thing that occurred to us is Ned's relationship to promises, for Rob had made a promise to Lord Walder, which he had now broken. Okay, so Ned memorably thought of, quote, the promises he'd made Liana as she lay dying and the price he'd paid to keep them. The reader knows or can guess what Ned sacrificed to keep his promises to his sister. And while that was a hidden cost, at least from the point of view of his children, One thing that was in plain sight for all the North to see was Ned's alleged bastard son, Jon Snow. Here was the result of Ned's moment of dishonour, and as far as anyone observing could see, it appeared that Ned had kept his faith with his wife, while at the same time honourably taking care of the result of his infidelity. So, Ned apparently made a mistake as a young man and decided the honourable thing to do was to keep faith with the woman he had married, but significantly he publicly gave a home to the bastard child that resulted from his mistake, perhaps at the cost of his own honour or happiness. And given that medieval-era betrothals were viewed as binding as a marriage, we might conclude that in Rob's position, Ned would have acted differently. And here we see a parallel to the case of England's King Edward IV and Elizabeth Woodville. Edward was the first Yorkist king of England and came to power as first the Duke of York and then king at a very young age. It is well known that George took a lot of inspiration from the Wars of the Roses in writing both his characters and their struggles. So it's really worth looking at the historical parallels. Edward, who became the fourth king of that name by acclamation of the Lords of the Realm at the age of 19, also had a reputation as a keen military commander at a very early age, taking over the leadership of the Yorkist faction after his father's death in battle. However, within a few years, even as his cousin, the Earl of Warwick, was negotiating a royal marriage contract for him in France, Edward angered his primary supporters and horrified his nobles by making a secret marriage to the widow Elizabeth Woodville, the daughter of a landed knight with a large and ambitious family. Edward's marriage and elevation of his wife's family angered Warwick to the degree that the powerful Earl chose to support first Edward's younger brother, the Duke of Clarence, and then the deposed former king, the Lancastrian, Henry VI. 
So Edward himself was deposed and only regained the throne after a series of bloody battles that resulted ultimately in the death of the Lancastrian heir and the suspicious death in London of Henry VI himself. Circumstances which have more parallels to Robert Baratheon and the Battle of the Trident than Rob Stark. But the point is in the marriage. King's do not have the luxury of choosing their own brides, whether for love or lust or honour. They must do what is best for their dynasty and for their realm, a difficult reality which neither Rob nor Edward IV seem to have heeded. And getting back to the question of what Ned would do, we have to point out that, assuming that John is actually Lyanna's son, The reality is that Ned made a very different sort of sacrifice to keep a promise, his own honor in exchange for his family's safety, in which case we could also conclude that Ned would have acted very differently from Rob. Yeah, and then we can consider Rob's decision in light of his boy-to-man theme that we talked so much about in the first episode. When the agreement for Rob to wed a fray was forged with Lord Walder back in A Game of Thrones, Catelyn had thought of her son. Boys might play with swords, but it took a lord to make a marriage pact, knowing what it meant. So at the time, we're left thinking this showed a positive development in Rob's manhood arc. What then does his eventual breaking of this pact say about that arc? Well, you know, we think that all things considered, we'd conclude that Rob the boy made the initial mistake with Jane Westerling, potentially dishonoring her and himself in the bargain. That he decided to, quote, do the right thing reveals the real dilemma he found himself in. We have no doubt that Rob thought about honor and probably even considered his father, that he may have found a parallel in Ned taking responsibility for John, apparently at the expense of his own honor, and applied it to his own situation is even likely. And so Rob made what he thought was a manly decision to preserve the lady's honor at the expense of his own as a king. It was an unwinnable scenario, really, from the standpoint of honor, and in this instance, Rob chose to act as a man rather than a king. Yeah, acting as a man rather than a king is a really interesting concept, we think, and with catastrophic consequences, as we'll see. For Rob lost the phrase when he married Jane Westerling, and without Helmand Tallhart at the Twins, he had no envoy in place to even attempt to keep the peace. In the meantime, Kat had her own fit of madness born from grief. Her release of Jamie Lannister with Cleos Frey and Brienne of Tarth as his escort, in the hope that the Lannisters would respect Tyrion's promise to return her daughters to her unharmed, was fueled by the news of her younger son's deaths. We find it very interesting that when he speaks to Cat about Jamie, Rob tells her, You freed him without my knowledge or consent. But what you did, I know you did for love. 
Okay, so shades of Jamie's own words there when he shoved Bran Stark from a tower window for love. And we've already pointed out the similarity in motivation when Ned changed the words of Robert's will as they were dictated to him, thinking, the lies we tell for love. And we think this theme of the things people will do for love is something George really loves to show us, especially when he's juxtaposing the Starks and the Lannisters. And of course, the resulting quarrel with the Karstarks, who killed the two young Lannister squires, Tion Frey and Willem Lannister, in retaliation for the Kingslayer's quote-unquote escape, led to the arrest and execution of Lord Rickard and the loss of the Karstark levy. And Rob acted throughout that situation, much as his father might have done, condemning Lord Rickard for treason. But the supposed kinship between Stark and Karstark led to Lord Rickard cursing Rob as a kinslayer. Yeah, although interpreting Lord Rickard's words as the desperation of a doomed man gets a lot of support from George himself, who replied to a fan's question about kinslaying by telling them that the degree of kinship matters a lot. He went on, Killing a parent is probably worse than killing a sibling, but either one is a lot worse than killing a distant cousin. Lord Karstark was stretching that aspect of it when he tried to accuse Rob of kinslaying, but of course, he was hoping to save his head. Yes, so from the author himself, he was trying to save his own head, and we wonder if he was trying to offend Rob in the bargain. Okay, so not to pile on Edmure, but in the meantime, he had sent word to Roos Bolton at Harrenhal that Jamie Lannister had escaped, meaning when Jamie and Brienne fell into his hands, he was sure to be inclined to disbelieve the story Brienne told him about an exchange of hostages. As he told her, the raven that came from Riverrun told of an escape, not an exchange. And if you help this captive slip his bonds, you are guilty of treason, my lady. At the same time, we also see Roos further hedge his bets. As he tells Jamie and Brienne at Harrenhal, Rob had, quote, won every battle, whilst losing the Freys, the Karstarks, Winterfell, and the North. A pity the wolf is so young. Boys of 16 always believe they are immortal and invincible. An older man would bend the knee, I'd think. After a war, there is always peace, and with peace, there are pardons. And right there's a huge hint at Roos's intentions, since he himself is an older man who would be looking for one of those pardons. Of course, in retrospect, we know Roos had already made up his mind when he received word of Rob's marriage and the break with the phrase. Roos himself was married to Lord Walder's granddaughter by that time, and we saw him issue the false orders to Helmut Talhart and Robert Glover to attack Duskendale in Rob's name in Arya's final chapter in A Clash of Kings, probably some two months earlier. And of course, his decision to send Jaime back to King's Landing is a much less subtle indication that Roos Bolton was courting Lannister favor and was no loyal bannerman. 
And so now, with the loss of Jamie Lannister, the death of Rickard Karstark, Ironborn in the North, and the enmity of the phrase, the failure to gain a decisive victory over Tywin in the West looks a much more dire circumstance. In our next segment, we'll discuss Rob's plans to make amends for all of these events. But to lead us out now, here's a reading of the execution of Lord Rickard Carstark. When day broke, grey and chilly, the storm had diminished to a steady soaking rain. Yet even so, the godswood was crowded. River lords and northmen, highborn and low, knights and sellswords and stable boys, they stood amongst the trees to see the end of the night's dark dance. Edmure had given commands, and a headsman's block had been set up before the heart tree. Rain and leaves fell all around them as the great John's men led Lord Rickard Carstark through the press, hands still bound. His men already hung from River Run's high walls, slumping at the end of long ropes as the rain washed down their darkening faces. Long Lou waited beside the block, but Rob took the poleaxe from his hand and ordered him to step aside. This is my work. He dies at my word. He must die by my hand. Lord Rickard Carstark dipped his head stiffly. For that much, I thank you, but for naught else. He had dressed for death in a long black wool surcoat emblazoned with the white sunburst of his house. The blood of the first men flows in my veins as much as yours, boy. You would do well to remember that. I was named for your grandfather. I raised my banners against King Ares for your father and against King Joffrey for you. At Ox Cross in the Whispering Wood and in the Battle of the Camps, I rode beside you and I stood with Lord Eddard on the trident. We are kin, Stark and Karstark. This kinship did not stop you from betraying me and it will not save you now. Kneel, my lord. Lord Rickard had spoken truly, Catelyn knew. The Karstarks traced their descent to Carlon Stark, a younger son of Winterfell who had put down a rebel lord a thousand years ago and been granted lands for his valor. The castle he built had been named Carl's Hold, but that soon became Carhold, and over the centuries the Carhold Starks had become the Karstarks. Oh, gods on you, it makes no matter. Lord Rickard told her son. No man is so accursed as the kinslayer. Kneel, traitor, or must I have them force your head onto the block? Rob said. Lord Karstark knelt. The gods shall judge you as you have judged me. He laid his head upon the block. Rob lifted the heavy axe with both hands. Rickard Karstark, Lord of Carhold, here, in sight of gods and men, I judge you guilty of murder and high treason. In mine own name, I condemn you. With mine own hand, I take your life. Would you speak a final word? Kill me and be cursed. You are no king of mine.
So, the execution of Rickard Karstark there, and his desperate last words, cursing Rob as a kinslayer. And there's something very interesting in the description of the execution that ties back, oddly enough, to Theon's downward spiral in A Clash of Kings. First, here's the description of Theon's execution of the Winterfell kennelmaster, Farlin, who was the scapegoat for the murders of several of Theon's men who were actually killed by Ramsay in order to keep the secret of the Miller's boys. Here's the passage. As he knelt to the block, the kennelmaster said, My lord Eddard always did his own killings. Theon had to take the axe himself or look a weakling. His hands were sweating, so the shaft twisted in his grip as he swung, and the first blow landed between Farland's shoulders. It took three more cuts to hack through all that bone and muscle and sever the head from the body, and afterwards he was sick, remembering all the times they'd sat over a cup of mead talking of hounds and hunting. I had no choice, he wanted to scream at the corpse. Now compare that to the execution of Rickard Karstark by Rob, separated by an entire book, but in reality only a matter of weeks later. The axe crashed down. Heavy and well honed, it killed at a single blow, but it took three to sever the man's head from his body, and by the time it was done, both living and dead were drenched in blood. Rob flung the poleaxe down in disgust and turned wordless to the heart tree. He stood shaking with his hands half-clenched and the rain running down his cheeks. "'Gods forgive him,' Catelyn prayed in silence. "'He is only a boy, and he had no other choice.'" Okay, so both executions done with an axe, and neither going quite as smoothly as we saw, for instance, in the case of Ned's execution of Garrod. Both young men show their physical disgust for the act, and in both cases, the passage ends with them having, quote, no choice. And while the situation couldn't be more different on the surface, we couldn't help noticing these similarities and the fact that what both scenes really highlight is a downward spiral for the character involved. Yeah, that's true. Things are not looking good for either Rob or Theon at this point. And of course, Kat noting that Rob is only a boy highlights that theme we keep coming back to. And regarding Karstark claiming kinship with Rob, in the previous segment we mentioned that George himself threw a little shade on that idea. As for Lord Rickard taking revenge for his son's deaths on the battlefield... We know he had already killed Sir Stafford Lannister at Oxcross, and who knows how many other Lannisters or Lannister men in battle. But the idea that he slew Willem Lannister and Tyon Frey, two unarmed captive squires, out of anything other than a dangerous, blind rage directed more at the Starks on account of Catelyn's release of Jaime than at the boys themselves or their Lannister family, has to be discounted. Well, in fact, Lord Rickard admitted as much when he said to Rob defiantly, tell your mother to look at them. She slew them as much as I. So the deaths of the two boys was not justice, but murder, vengeance against the Starks. And as Rob says, your work, your murder, your treason. And the fact that Tion Frey was Lord Walder's grandson, in addition to being Tywin's nephew, cannot be understated. 
That's right. The phrase have now been doubly insulted, and Rob's task of making amends seems colossal. At the end of his first meeting with his mother and uncles after his return to River Run, Rob had wondered how he could make things up to Lord Walder. Catelyn had an idea, although her meaning didn't become plain until several chapters later. Here's the exchange. We must win back the phrase, said Rob. With them, we still have some chance of success, however small. Without them, I see no hope. I'm willing to give Lord Walder whatever he requires. Apologies, honors, lands, gold. There must be something that would soothe his pride. Not something, said Catelyn. Someone. And following Lord Hoster's long-expected death, Lothar Frey arrived at Riverrun for the funeral with his brother Walder Rivers and requested an audience with Rob. Though he presented himself as the soul of courtesy, his thanks to Rob for the swift, sure justice he meted out to Rickard Carstark are a not-so-subtle reminder that one of Lord Carstark's victims was indeed a Frey. And he also brought news of two other grandsons of Lord Walder, formerly Catelyn's wards at Winterfell. No longer at Winterfell, Lothar informed her, but now at the Dreadfort. It seemed Theon Greyjoy had burned Winterfell rather than lose it. Yeah, and while Rob had previously been informed by Roose Bolton that Ramsay Snow had been executed by Roderick Cassell, they were now informed that it was Ramsay who, quote, saved the women of Winterfell and the little ones, and that Roderick Cassell was dead at the hands of the Ironborn, as were many of the Stark's retainers and small folk. And upon hearing this news, it says, Wordless with rage, Rob slammed a fist down on the table and turned his face away so the phrase would not see his tears, but his mother saw them. So here's another hint that in spite of his tremendous personal growth over the course of many months, Rob is still very young and it's his mother who sees and understands that reality. After Lord Hoster's funeral, when they walked together and Rob gave her the news of Sansa's marriage to Tyrion Lannister, Catelyn had watched her son and thought, there was a glumness to his face and a slope to his shoulders that made her heart go out to him. The crown is crushing him. He wants so much to be a good king, to be brave and honourable and clever but the weight is too much for a boy to bear. Rob was doing all he could, yet still the blows kept falling, one after the other, relentless. Yeah, again, that theme of boy versus man, only lately it seems the pendulum is swinging back towards Rob's relative youth. And from Rob's perspective, he's dealt with the death of his father, the betrayal by Theon Greyjoy and the deaths of his brothers, the loss of the prize hostage, Jamie Lannister, the loss of the Freys and the Karstarks, the forced wedding of his sister to a Lannister, the bungling of the plan to defeat Lord Tywin by his uncle, and the loss of one-third of his foot at Duskendale. And now he has to deal with the destruction of his home. So if the burdens seem to be weighing upon him, it's really no wonder at all. In the wake of this further devastating news, Lothar Frey delivered his father's response to an offer that had been made off-page. 
Right, here is where we learn that the someone Kat had in mind was her brother Edmure, and that he was to be offered in Rob's place as a bridegroom for one of Lord Walder's daughters. We pointed out in our Cat episode that this was more or less exactly the same deal Lord Walder had previously made for Rob, if not slightly better, since Rob was only the heir to Winterfell at that time, and Edmure was now the Lord of Riverrun and Lord Walder's liege. But time had intervened. Rob was named King in the North, and Lord Walder's pride had been sorely bruised at the loss of the prospect of one of his own daughters being a queen. So Lothar's message was this. My lord father bids me tell your grace that he will agree to this new marriage alliance between our houses and renew his fealty to the king in the north upon the condition that the king's grace apologize for the insult done to House Frey in his royal person face to face. And it says that Catelyn immediately misliked this condition. And when the Frey brothers insisted the marriage to a daughter Edmure had yet to meet be performed immediately at the crossing with no chance to meet the bride beforehand. It says Catelyn was growing less and less comfortable with this arrangement. So the feeling of unease is telegraphed early on and would continue to build throughout the rest of Cat's A Storm of Swords chapters as we're going to see. Nevertheless, Edmure agrees to the terms to quote, make amends for his Battle of the Fords, and as with Lord Walder's earlier conditions, Rob sees no choice but to agree as well. And the next time we see Rob is on the day of his departure from Riverrun for the crossing, where Cat's point of view tells us Rob bid farewell to his young queen thrice, once in the godswood before the heart tree in the sight of gods and men, the second time beneath the portcullis where Jane sent him forth with a long embrace and a longer kiss, and finally an hour beyond the tumblestone when the girl came galloping up on a well-lathered horse to plead with her young king to take her along. Catelyn describes Rob as gentle yet firm with his young wife, and we learn that the Queen was being left behind at his mother's urging, along with all of the Westerlings except for Sir Reynold. And with Sir Brynden Tully, who had been named Warden of the Southern Marches and charged with holding the Trident and protecting Queen Jane, a fact we expect to be very significant early on in the Winds of Winter. And so begins the journey to the crossing to make amends to the phrase and ultimately to the north. For it's during this journey that we learn of Rob's intentions to retake the north and drive the Ironborn back into the sea. Yeah, during this long rainy journey through the Riverlands, Cat asks Rob what his intentions are once he's seen his uncle married and rejoined his host with the men under Lord Bolton at the Twins. North, he tells her, but that's all he'll say for the time being. It's heavily implied, though, that he has a plan, and so a little glimmer of hope is introduced into what has been a very grim and heavy series of chapters, with bad news from all sides and the weather acting as a mirror to the characters' moods. Right, the raid and physical misery is remarked upon often, and with roads and bridges washed away, 
The trip to the Twins is literally a long, hard slog. And it's more than a fortnight later when they actually arrive at Old Stones, where Cat and Rob speak alone for what must be the first time in many days. And it's there that Rob tells his mother, A king must have an heir. If I should die in my next battle, the kingdom must not die with me. By law, Sansa is next in line of succession, so Winterfell and the North would pass to her. To her and her lord husband, Tyrion Lannister. I cannot allow that. I will not allow that. That dwarf must never have the North. And this isn't the first time Rob has raised the issue, for in a previous chapter, when he first told his mother about Sansa's marriage, and she wondered... My poor sweet Sansa, why would anyone do this to her? Rob's answer was simple. For Winterfell, with Bran and Rickon dead, Sansa is my heir, if anything should happen to me. And in light of the building sense of dread we get, as the journey north continues, his mother's reaction was tragically prescient. Nothing will happen to you. Nothing. I could not stand it. They took Ned. And your sweet brothers. Sansa is married. Arya is lost. My father is dead. If anything befell you, I would go mad, Rob. You are all I have left. You are all the North has left. So, some foreshadowing of her own fate from Cat there. And we think it's very likely that Rob had been considering his options for many weeks since first learning of Sansa's marriage, and he may have arrived at his decision some time ago, but waited for an opportune moment to talk to his mother alone about it. I think we really see some sensitivity here on his part for what he knew her reaction would be, and in spite of him ultimately not heeding her objections, he did give her the opportunity to air them, and in private. He'd clearly given this a lot of thought, though, and had answers to every objection she raised, and in the end, it seems to us he was unequivocal in his decision. Here's the final exchange of their meeting. John is the only brother that remains to me. Should I die without issue, I want him to succeed me as king in the north. I had hoped you would support my choice. I cannot, she said, in all else, Rob, in everything, but not in this, this folly. Do not ask it. I don't have to. I'm the king. Yes, so I want John to succeed me doesn't seem to leave much grey area at all. And our interpretation is that Rob considered the matter absolutely settled. We also learn that he has completely given up hope, not only for Sansa, but for Arya, who hasn't been heard from since Ned was seized by the Lannisters. Another thing of note is that Cat's angry words comparing Jon to Theon prompted a menacing reaction from Grey Wind, a subtle highlight of the deep connection between Rob and his wolf. But in the end, Cat is left alone and feeling desolate. Again, the weather highlights the character's mood. In a pathetic fallacy, it says, She might have wept then, had not the sky begun to do it for her. And while Cat seems to have withdrawn following that conversation, it says, 
In the days that followed, Rob was everywhere and anywhere, riding at the head of the van with the Great John, scouting with Grey Wind, riding back to Robin Flint in the rear guard, and it seems to us that his frantic energy mirrored his determination to succeed in his upcoming missions to set things right. Paired with Kat's worry as to whether her son was sleeping with all this activity and thinking back on her reflection of how the weight of the crown was crushing him, we can see again a subtle telegraphing of trouble to come. Yeah, and the rain continues to tell the tale, as Kat now explicitly says to Mage and Daisy Mormont, This is an evil rain. We have suffered much, and there is more peril and more grief ahead. We need to face it boldly, with horns blowing and banners flying bravely. But this rain beats us down. The banners hang limp and sodden, and the men huddle under their cloaks and scarcely speak to one another. Only an evil rain would chill our hearts when we most need them to burn hot. And this conversation with the Mormont women, which we've discussed from other angles in our Cat and Jorah episodes, leads to another reflection from Kat that adds subtly to the growing sense of dread and, in hindsight, prescience. All lost now. Winterfell and Ned, Bran and Rickon, Sansa, Arya, all gone. Only Rob remains. Would that I had known how to wield an axe. Perhaps I might have been able to protect them better. So, only Rob remains for the North, and we've already been made aware of Kat's worry for him. And the weather continues to set the mood as day followed day and still the rain kept falling. And the army wound its way alongside the Blue Fork and into Hagsmire. And then it says, Lord Jason Malister caught up with them amidst the bogs of Hagsmire. There was more than an hour of daylight remaining when he rode up with his column, but Rob called a halt at once. And Sir Reynold Westerling came to escort Catelyn to the king's tent. She found her son seated beside a brazier, a map across his lap. Grey Wind slept at his feet. The Great John was with him, along with Galbert Glover, Mage Mormont, Edmure, and a man that Catelyn did not know a fleshy, balding man with a cringing look to him. No lordling, this one, she knew, the moment she laid eyes on the stranger. Not even a warrior. And this man turns out to be none other than the captain of the Miraham, the ship from Old Town that had borne Theon Greyjoy to Pike, and which had remained at harbour there until Lord Balon fell from a bridge and Euron arrived the next day. He managed to slip away as Euron seized control of the Iron Islands and made his way to Seacard with his news. It was, Jason Malister said, good tidings, I hope. Well, it certainly seemed to be. Rob had clearly been planning an assault on Moat Kaelin to retake the North, but this turn of events seemed to have really paved the way for it. As Rob put it, Balon's death and Euron's sudden reappearance would mean that Victarion, commander of the Iron Fleet, who was currently holding Mokalin, would have to return to the Iron Islands, a fact no less true for Balon's daughter, Asha, at Deepwood Mott. As Rob saw it, a weakened ironborn garrison in the neck would mean an ideal time to strike at them unawares. 
And here's where we learn of Rob's plan to send Lady Mage and Galbert Glover to contact Howland Reed and enlist the Cranigmen. He would approach Moke Kalin with 12,000 men, but he intended for his own battle of 4,000 to melt into the neck with the aid of the Cranigmen and re-emerge north of Moke Kalin to flank the Ironborn. A three-pronged attack on the first day of the new year, when the defenders would least expect it, would be almost certain to succeed. That's right. But then, from a meta standpoint, we get a subtle hint that things might not go according to this plan. Rob states his intention to send Catelyn to Seaguard following Edmure's wedding. Obviously, had things worked out that way, we would have lost our point of view with Rob for a time. Something not unheard of in the world of A Song of Ice and Fire, but in Rob's case, where we've had a POV on him nearly continuously since Bran's first chapter in game, with the exception of when Cat went south to be the observer of the crucial Renly and Stannis scene. It could be seen as an implication of some trouble to come. Catelyn protests, but Rob will not bend, and it becomes obvious to his mother that the council had been aware of his plan all along. And then Rob played his ace in the hole. Right, from Cat's point of view, we get the sense of this council as a performance being made for her benefit when Rob returns to the matter of his succession. Neatly tying the current situation in the Iron Islands into his own, he says, One more matter. Lord Balon has left chaos in his wake, we hope. I would not do the same, yet I have no son as yet. My brothers Bran and Rickon are dead, and my sister is wed to a Lannister. I've thought long and hard about who might follow me. I command you now, as my true and loyal lords, to fix your seals to this document as witnesses to my decision. So, as we've said, there's no hint that he changed his mind since his conversation with his mother when Rob presents a document to be signed by Lord Jason, Sir Reynold, the Great John, Mage Mormont, Galbert Glover and Edmure. And based on Catelyn's reaction, harking back to their exchange at Oldstones, we're left to assume that this will does indeed name Jon Snow as Rob's heir. A king indeed, Catelyn thought, defeated. She could only hope that the trap he'd planned for Moe Caelan worked as well as the one in which he'd just caught her. So, Cat, feeling defeated in the matter of Jon Snow, is about to be sent off to Seaguard to wait out the war while Rob retakes the North. A neat trap, she thinks, and of course it's worth pointing out again that Lord Jason, Mage, and Galbert evidently left that council and returned to Seaguard with a small number of their own retainers, Mage's two younger daughters, Lyra and Jory, among them. While Edmure and the Great John, and we think possibly even Sir Reynold, as we'll discuss shortly, survived the Red Wedding. All of these people know who Rob named as his heir, and this forms the basis of the Grand Northern Conspiracy Theories, as we've discussed at length in our North Remembers episode. Yeah, that one's one of our most popular episodes. I know a lot of you have listened to that. But for now, we're staying with Rob. So we're going to wrap up this segment and move on to Kat's next chapter, which is her penultimate POV, 
where we see the army's arrival at the Twins and the build-up to the final chapter in Rob's story. So we'll be back in just a moment to discuss these two absolutely packed chapters, as well as the foreshadowings, causes, narrative sequence and impact of The Red Wedding. To lead us out now, here are Rob's words in council as he settles the question of Cat's fate and his own heir. I left my wife at River Run. I want my mother elsewhere. If you keep all your treasures in one purse, you only make it easier for those who would rob you. After the wedding, you shall go to Seaguard. That is my royal command. One more matter. Lord Balon has left chaos in his wake, we hope. I would not do the same. Yet I have no son as yet. My brothers, Bran and Rickon, are dead. And my sister is wed to a Lannister. I've thought long and hard about who might follow me. I command you now, as my true and loyal lords, to fix your seals to this document as witnesses to my decision. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Like a never-ending bass note heard only at the edge of sound, Martin has deployed the setting leading up to Rob's arrival at the Twins as a means to tip off the attentive reader that all is not right. As that bass note would do, the setting and mood depicted in Kat's point-of-view chapters following their departure from Riverrun makes not only the characters, but also the reader, feel physically uneasy. The opening line of Kat's penultimate chapter, They heard the green fork before they saw it, an endless susurrus like the growl of some great beast, continues this device and signals its acceleration. That's right. As this chapter proceeds, there are numerous things telegraphed in the setting that just aren't right. Catelyn's discomfort is plain right from the start, and she urges an amused Rob to take advantage of the guest right as soon as they enter the twins. 
Then, combined with the continued rain and the sound of the river in flood, we get Grey Wind's reaction to the Frey welcome party. The wolf charged at Blackwalder, Sir Raymond and his three sons when they rode out to meet the royal party, causing Peter Frey to be knocked off his horse. Yeah, only Cat's intervention seemed to stop the wolf long enough for Rob to regain control. And the interesting thing is that as much as Cat is aware of the dire wolf's protective nature, the misinformation she has about Bran and Rickon's deaths has caused her to discount it somewhat. And she doesn't really stop to wonder at this point. Instead, her focus remains on the angry and chilly reception they're receiving from the phrase. Right, it notes that no obeisance was made, meaning no recognition of Rob's kingly status. Instead, angry words about the wolf are paired with accusations of being late and demands as to the whereabouts of Queen Jane, called only the woman. And then we see one of the numerous little hints at Cat's fate that pop up on a reread when it says... Across the turbulent waters, Catelyn could see several thousand men encamped around the eastern castle, their banners hanging like so many drowned cats from the lances outside their tents. Okay, so a reference to drowned cats there, hinting at cats' fate, and of course you can hear a more in-depth analysis of the foreshadowings dealing with Cat and Lady Stoneheart in our Catelyn episode. And then there was more trouble at the gatehouse. Grey Wind refused to pass under the portcullis until Rob convinced him, leading Cat to think he does not like this place. But on the other hand, once inside the twins, Rob left Grey Wind in the care of Reynald Westerling so as to keep both the wolf and the possibly offensive Westerman out of Lord Walder's presence, a deft and diplomatic choice that may have had unintended consequences. Yeah, we'll discuss that in our next segment. Anyway, once inside the hall, Cat's unease continued to grow, as the presence of the fool Jingle Bell Frey, always so carefully hidden before, made her wonder if he was being shown now as a mockery of Rob. Rob made his uncomfortable but courteous and sincere apology to Lord Walder's daughters, and then Edmure was presented to Roslyn. Not for the last time, it's noted that she was crying, although she passed it off as tears of joy and Catelyn seemed to accept this. When the conversation turned to the wedding feast, Lord Walder commented, We'll have music, such sweet music, and wine, heh, the red will run, and we'll put some wrongs right. Right, so the red will run. That's one of the subtle hints that seems kind of obvious in retrospect. And aside from the general mood of unease that George has been building up, the hints to the climax basically fall into two categories. First are the outright foreshadowings, clues which a careful reader might pick up on to predict the outcome. There are several of these which we'll go through shortly, as well as a subcategory of foreshadowings concerning Catelyn and Lady Stoneheart, as we just mentioned, and we're not going to address there, but again, we'll point you to our Catelyn episode where we first discussed the Red Wedding in depth. Right, we did. 
And that cat episode is also where you'll find our most difficult and chilling reading to date of the final moments of the Red Wedding from Catelyn's point of view. And anyway, the second group are the hints and foreshadowings that seem obvious only in retrospect, of which there are many that we're also going to go through, although we can't promise a completely exhaustive look at those because Storm and even Clash and to some extent uh, Game of Thrones are chock full of little details that fit into the puzzle upon a reread but probably pass unnoticed on the first go. Anyway, getting back to the narrative, we soon see Catch requesting some food in an obvious bid to invoke the protection of guest right. Yeah, and in hindsight, Lord Walter's response has made some readers take note. Here's a part of the passage. Walder Frey's mouth moved in and out. Food, heh, a loaf of bread, a bite of cheese, mayhaps a sausage. Lord Walder took a cup of red himself and raised it high with a spotted hand. My guests, he said, my honored guests, be welcome beneath my roof and at my table. Okay, so note the use of the word mayhaps there. And now let's go all the way back to Bran 1 in A Clash of Kings, when Lord Walder's grandsons first arrived at Winterfell. In the chapter, Bran describes a game the two young Freys like to play called Lord of the Crossing. Here's the description. The way their game was played, you laid the log across the water and one player stood in the middle with a stick. He was the Lord of the Crossing and when one of the other players came up, he had to say, I am the Lord of the Crossing, who goes there? and the other player had to make up a speech about who they are and why they should be allowed to cross. The Lord could make them swear oaths and answer questions. They didn't have to tell the truth, but the oaths were binding unless they said mayhaps. So the trick was to say mayhaps so the Lord of the Crossing didn't notice. Then you could try and knock the Lord into the water and you got to be the Lord of the Crossing, but only if you said mayhaps. Otherwise, you were out of the game. And we think that Lord Walder may have purposely used the word mayhaps in a little nod to this game played by the Children of the Crossing, where the use of that particular word made one's oaths not binding. In proximity to the invocation of guest right, Perhaps Lord Walder was making some sort of internal justification as he knowingly made a promise that would soon be broken. Anyway, the Stark Tully party are soon shown to their quarters, where Edmure remarks to Catelyn on Lord Walder's unexpectedly mild treatment of them. A few barbed words and some unseemly gloating. From him, that's courtesy. I expected the old weasel to piss in our wine and make us praise the vintage. But it says that Edmure's jest, quote, left Catelyn strangely disquieted. So we're not being let off of the feeling of anxiety that's been carefully developed by George. And if you think all seems too easy, you're not alone. In fact, by this time, many readers might be experiencing a sense of outright foreboding. And if you weren't, Cat and Rob's meeting with Roose Bolton 
probably moved you right there. As we mentioned earlier, Roos has been hedging his bets all along and even shown explicitly making decisions counter to Rob's interests. His manner always seemed to make those in his presence uncomfortable and in this scene is no different, except that here it serves to pile onto an already anxious mood. And when they discuss Ramsay and Theon, Roos makes a very interesting comment that we think very nearly tips his hand. In hindsight, it certainly indicates the mindset of the man and the lengths to which he'll go to achieve his own ends. He begins by reminding Rob of Theon's position as Balon Greyjoy's only living son, now rightful king of the Iron Islands. He continues to basically outline something that we've pointed out before must have been part of his plan for Theon all along, but it's the final part that caught our interest here. A captive king has great value as a hostage. Whoever wins the sea stone chair will want Theon Greyjoy dead. Even in chains he has a better claim than any of his uncles. Hold him, I say, and demand concessions from the Ironborn as the price of his execution. Okay, so if you substituted Rob for Theon and Lannisters for the Ironborn in that last sentence, hold him and demand concessions as the price of his execution. And combine that with what Roos had said earlier to Jamie and Brienne about bending the knee and seeking pardons, and you'd be pretty close to seeing exactly what was going on behind the scenes at the Twins. And in case you didn't quite see it, Roos doubled down later at the feast itself when it says, Bolton had made a toast to Lord Walder's grandsons when the wedding feast began, pointedly mentioning that Walder and Walder were in the care of his bastard son. From the way the old man had squinted at him, his mouth sucking in at the air, Catelyn knew he had heard the unspoken threat. Okay, so we've had more than enough hints that Roose Bolton is up to something, and the careful reader could probably even figure out what that is at this point. George's American editor, Anne Grohl, has commented on his threefold revelation strategy, saying, I see it in play almost every time. The first subtle hint for the really astute readers, followed later by the more blatant hint for the less attentive, followed by just spelling it out for everyone else. And we think is really in play here with the Red Wedding reveal and with Roos specifically. Yeah, we do. And we'll go through some more of the reveal method shortly. But now getting back to the narrative, Catelyn's final chapter opens with a virtual cacophony. The mood device has reached a frenzied peak and our unease should mirror Catelyn's by this point. Here's the passage. The drums were pounding, 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 and ahead with them. Pipes wailed and flutes trilled from the musicians' gallery at the foot of the hall. Fiddles screeched, horns blew, the skins skirled a lively tune, but the drumming drove them all. The sounds echoed off the rafters whilst the guests ate, drank, and shouted at one another below. Walder Frey must be as deaf as a stone to call this music. So, it's almost like those musicians aren't really musicians. 
And Kat goes on to describe a sweltering hall with guests packed in tight and a poor menu. She notes, poor Rosalind's smile had a fixed quality to it, as if someone had sewn it onto her face. And later we see the bride continuing to weep and look terrified. But on the other hand, wine is flowing, and in some regards, the mood is like a drunken body party. Yes, it is. And as the feast moves towards the inevitable high point, the bedding, Kat has a momentary word with Rob, who tells her, A few more hours and this fast is done, mother, before leaning over to ask Sir Ryman about the whereabouts of Oliver, his erstwhile squire. Ryman's vague answer, gone, gone from the castles, duty, is all too similar to the reply Kat had received when she inquired about Perwin earlier. Both young men were full brothers to the bride and known to be friendly to the Starks. So, a troubling pattern has emerged, but Kat still doesn't see it. Then the bedding party dances out of the hall on their ribald mission, leaving Kat and Rob in the hall with some of their retainers, like Wendell Manderley and small John Umber, as well as Patrick Malister and Daisy Mormont, who were Rob's guard for the evening. Kat observes Edwin Frey react to Daisy Mormont with, quote, unseemly violence, and suddenly everything starts veering into madness. Yes, it does. Seized by doubt, Kat hurried after Edwin, who was trying to leave the room. As she rushed across the hall, it says the singers began to play a very different sort of song. No one sang the words, but Catelyn knew the reigns of Castamere when she heard it. And when she reached Edwin and touched his arm, it says she felt the iron rings beneath his silken sleeve. And in that moment, it all came clear to her, the missing phrase and the weeping bride and her own persistent unease and doubt, and she slapped him. Yeah, and then when the crossbow bolts started flying, fired by the supposed musicians from the gallery who turned out to be archers, the first two seemed to hit Rob. Cat herself was struck in the back as she rushed to his side, and she saw Wendell Manderley, Small John, Daisy, Lucas Blackwood, Donald Locke, Owen Norrie, Robin Flint, and one of the Vances all struck down, plus a half a dozen more. As Cat struggled to reach a dagger on the floor with the thought of killing old Lord Walder, Rob pulled himself to his feet. And Lord Walder greeted him with venomous mockery. Heh! The king in the north arises. Seems like we killed some of your men, your grace. Oh, but I'll make you an apology. That will mend them all again. Heh. And now we see just what value he had placed upon Rob's heartfelt apology. Absolutely none. Nothing Rob said or did could have changed the outcome here. It had been decided long before. But Kat, desperate to save her son, abandoned her plan to kill the old man and grabbed Jingle Bell, holding the knife to his throat. Pleading, she begged for Rob's release, offering herself and Edmure as hostages, ordering Rob to save himself if he can. 
proclaiming she'll kill Jingle Bell if they don't let Rob go. But Lord Walder wasn't about to trade his Lackwit grandson for his carefully planned vengeance, and Roose Bolton had returned to keep things on track. Rob's last words were, Grey wind, before Roose stepped up and plunged his sword through his heart, delivering that now famous line, Jamie Lannister sends his regards, which, coupled with the fact that the perpetrators chose the landmark's trademark song as the soundtrack to the massacre, would one day spell trouble for Jamie at the hands of Lady Stoneheart. As grief unhinged her mind, Cat had her vengeance on the phrase. Rob had broken his word, but Catelyn kept hers. She tugged hard on Aegon's hair and sawed at his neck until the blood grated on bone. Blood ran hot over her fingers. His little bells were ringing, 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 and the drum went boom, doom, boom. Yes, it's such a dark, horrifying moment there. And, you know, I, every time we talk about this, me and Lady Gwyn, we, we get emotional. It just stays with you. It's so traumatic. And Catelyn's point of view ends with her own death so quickly after that of her son. And the rest we see from one very short eye point of view. She had been approaching the castle with Sandor Clegane when the violence began. It says, somewhere far off, she heard a wolf howling. It wasn't very loud compared to the camp noise and the music and the low ominous growl of the river running wild, but she heard it all the same. Or maybe it wasn't her ears that heard it. The sound shivered through Aya like a knife, sharp with rage and grief. And then we see the phrase massacre, Rob's army, and start to burn their camp. Yeah, all this is coming from Arya's point of view in the moment right when she thinks she's about to be reunited with her brother and her mother. And although she's confused and she holds out hope that they're still alive just inside the castle, Sandor shouts at her, Dead! Do you think they'd slaughter his men and leave him alive? And after Sandor knocks her senseless to keep her from running into the castle to find them, we don't see Arya again for some time. But her next point of view chapter opens with, She could feel the hole inside her every morning when she woke. It wasn't hunger, though sometimes there was that too. It was a hollow place, an emptiness where her heart had been, where her brothers had lived, and her parents. Yeah, we know that she dreamed of her mother dead, and can imagine that she might have had a similar revelation about Rob due to the connection she felt with Grey Wind, which to us seems like further evidence not only of the connection each Stark has to their own direwolf, but to the connection the wolves all seem to share with one another. Aya heard Greywind's rage and grief with some part of her mind that might not have been her ears, but rather that unknown place where the warging connection is sensed. And in the meantime, we've seen the rest of Rob's siblings learn or dream about his death as well. Sansa learns the truth 
from Tyrion, who is doing his best to be kind and gentle to her when the news arrives. He spares her the details, but gives her the facts of her brother's and her mother's deaths. It says, He had expected anguish and anger when he told her of her brother's death. But Sansa's face had remained so still that for a moment he had feared she had not understood. It was only later, with a heavy oaken door between them, that he heard her sobbing. Yeah, and Bran's next point of view finds him at the night fort, trying not to think of how scared he is, both of the abandoned castle and the terrible dream he and Summer had had. It says, no, I mustn't think about that dream. He had not even told the reeds, though Mira at least seemed to sense that something was wrong. If he never talked of it, maybe he could forget he ever dreamed it, and then it wouldn't have happened, and Rob and Grey Wind would still be... And finally, it takes some time to see it from John's POV, because he's occupied with the assault on Castle Black and Egret's death, but his following POV begins with a dream of Winterfell, which becomes something else. It says, Up above he heard drums. They are feasting in the Great Hall, but I am not welcome there. I am no Stark, and this is not my place. His crutch slipped, and he fell to his knees. The crypts were growing darker. A light has gone out somewhere. Egret, he whispered, forgive me, please. But it was only a direwolf, grey and ghastly spotted with blood, his golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. But in spite of that dream, referencing the drums at the feast and with a bloodied grey wind whom he mistakes for summer, John doesn't grasp the reality, as Bran did, that the light which had gone out was his brother. Later, as he sees Stannis' army approaching the wall, in confusion, he wonders if it could be Rob, and it's only in his next point of view chapter that we first see him mention Rob in the past tense, so he must have learned off-page sometime after Stannis' arrival. The loss of Rob is truly gut-wrenching for his brothers and sisters, because on his young shoulders had rested all of their hopes for justice for their father and for the recovery of their own futures. So now we've talked through the grimness of Rob's death and its impact on his family. Let's take some time to discuss how this event was telegraphed from very early on, really. We mentioned that George is on record saying that he planned it almost from the start of writing this series of novels. So we can expect to find quite a few hints throughout the first three books. We've already pointed out a couple of the earliest, like Rob's wolfhead sigil device from A Game of Thrones and the Lord of the Crossing game from early in A Clash of Kings. But there's another from game when Cat and Rob are discussing options on the march south. Cautioning Rob on the importance of keeping the respect of his lords, Cat warns him that, should he lose that respect... Some may even go over to the Lannisters. Okay, so red flag there, which pretty clearly telegraphed what would happen when that loss of respect happened. 
But another of the earliest hints actually concerns Cat herself, who insists, as she's about to meet Lord Walder to bargain for the crossing in A Game of Thrones, Lord Walder is my father's bannerman. I have known him since I was a girl. He would never offer me any harm. The silent thought that came next says it all in hindsight, unless he saw some profit in it. Well, as we said, we're not going to go into the rest of the Catelyn and the Lady Stoneheart foreshadowing here today. But one of the most clear examples of foreshadowing of Rob's death of the sort that could be clearly interpreted by an attentive reader came in A Clash of Kings when Danny visited the House of the Undying. Here's the passage describing the second scene she came upon. Farther on, she came upon a feast of corpses, savagely slaughtered. The feasters lay strewn across overturned chairs and hacked trestle tables, a sprawling pools of congealing blood. Some had lost limbs, even heads. Severed hands clutched bloody cups, wooden spoons roast fowl, heels of bread. In a throne above them sat a dead man with the head of a wolf. He wore an iron crown and held a leg of lamb in one hand as a king might hold a scepter. And his eyes followed Danny with mute appeal. So, a feast of corpses, savagely slaughtered feasters, a king with the head of a wolf, and an iron crown, even the leg of lamb, all prefigure the scene of the Red Wedding pretty closely. And then there's the mute appeal in the king's eyes. Compare that to this line as Catelyn threatened Jingle Bell Frey. She pressed the blade deeper into Jingle Bell's throat. The lackwit rolled his eyes at her in mute appeal. And there you have yet another element of similarity. Yeah, there's that mute appeal again. So that was from about midway into Clash, when there had already been numerous small hints at Roose Bolton and the phrase not being trustworthy, and even a few bits of minor foreshadowing perhaps. We saw Elmar Frey tearfully telling Arya that he wasn't going to marry his princess after all. And while that was as much about showing how angry the Freys were as anything else, it clearly marked a loss of respect for the young wolf, which should have been a danger sign. But Danny's vision is very specific and pairs with Theon's dream of the dead that comes a short time later. Things are going badly for Theon at Winterfell, and he's having nightmares. A dream about King Robert's welcoming feast from the beginning of game turns into this dream of the dead. All of those Theon knows or imagines to have died in the south, all of those he himself is responsible for killing, and then even the past dead of Winterfell, including Lord Rickard, Brandon, and even Lyanna. Yeah, but it's the final visitor to his dream that represents a hefty dose of foreshadowing, especially when paired with that earlier Danny vision. For while everyone else described is someone Theon knows or thinks to be dead, this person, at that moment, is still very much alive. And then the tall doors opened with a crash, and a freezing gale blew down the hall, and Rob came walking out of the night. 
Gray wind stalked beside, eyes burning, and men and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Okay, so taken together, we think those two visions represent the first part of George's so-called threefold revelation strategy, subtle hints that the careful reader might pick up on and combine with other textual hints to see where the narrative is going. But for those who didn't catch it on the first pass, there are some more blatant hints early in A Storm of Swords. Yeah, so starting with the sort of background hints from A Storm of Swords, Tyrion sees his father writing letters very early on and is told, some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens. And a couple of chapters later, when Tywin rejects an offer from Balon Greyjoy, the very perceptive Tyrion thinks, there's something he's not saying. He remembered those important letters Lord Tywin had been writing, the night Tyrion had demanded Casterly Rock. What was it, he said? Some battles are won with swords and spears, others with quills and ravens? He wondered who the better option was, and what sort of price Tywin was demanding. Right, and we know Tyrion to be very smart and perceptive. And in that same passage, he goes on to bring up the Westerling situation, showing that he's very near to the heart of the matter and giving the reader the tools to be there too. If not on the first pass, then clearly on a reread. This Westerling betrayal did not seem to have engaged his father as much as Tyrion would have expected. Lord Tywin did not suffer disloyalty in his vassals. The crag is not so far from Tarbeck Hall and Castamere, Tyrion pointed out. You'd think the Westerlings might have ridden past and seen the lesson there. Mayhaps they have, Lord Tywin said. They are well aware of Castamere, I promise you. Okay, so some pretty strong hints from Tyrion's point of view that Tywin is up to something. And finally, we come to the trio of references that represent the really blatant second wave of hints from A Storm of Swords. First, we have a verse from the Rambling Fool patchface that's a very clear reference to a wedding. Fool's blood, king's blood, blood on the maiden's thigh, but chains for the guests and chains for the bridegroom, I, I, I. So a clear reference to the deaths of Rob and Jingle Bell Frey and to Edmure Tully in chains. And then in another Davos chapter, Stannis burns three leeches full of the bastard Edric Storm's king's blood at the urging of Melisandre. He names them Joffrey, Balon Greyjoy and Rob Stark as he does so. Yeah, so it's getting closer now. And perhaps when Rob learned about Balon's death in that Catelyn chapter, we should have felt more of a shadow over the story and less of the character's elation. And then when Arya and the Brotherhood Without Banners arrive at High Heart for the second time, the little dwarf woman is there and she tells Beric, Thoros and Lem about her dream. The Kraken King is dead, she says, and then this. I dreamt a wolf howling in the rain, but no one heard his grief. I dreamt such a clangor, I thought my head might burst, drums and horns and pipes and screams, but the saddest sound was the little bells. So we often look at character arcs 
by sticking to the chapters that directly refer to whomever we're studying. But it's important to remember none of this happens in a vacuum and there are other cryptic references placed across the narrative and that chapter organisation really matters. All of the clues we've mentioned so far have been built upon each other, with this last one coming just before we see Cat and Rob set out from River Run for the wedding at the Twins. Which means that the howling wolf, the noisy music and the booming drums and even Jingle Bell's little bells were all prefigured right there for the attentive reader. Yeah, and from here on in, the hints are all relatively straightforward, as we've already mentioned, from the mood of the cat chapters to the reception they received at the twins. In Arya's point of view, Sander Clegane speaks of the bloody wedding and Arya's bloody brother, and the terrible music is mentioned often enough that we know it has to be significant. By the time we have POVs at the Twins, both Arya's and Kat's, we've had enough hints that all the details mentioned in those chapters amount only to the final stage of the reveal, wherein the author basically hits you over the head with the facts. Well, it's no surprise that so much care was taken with laying this groundwork for this event. George is on record about how long and difficult it was to write, but also that he considers it quote, probably the most powerful scene in the books. And for what it's worth, we know that he finished A Storm of Swords and then came back to write The Red Wedding because it was so difficult to do. And as with so much of the rest of A Song of Ice and Fire, George borrowed liberally from real life history when writing The Red Wedding. The infamous Black Dinner, where the advisors of the 10-year-old King of Scotland executed the 16-year-old Earl of Douglas and his brother at a feast meant to mark a peace between them, had a clear influence. Yes, it certainly did. And there's another event from Scottish history that served as some inspiration as well. The Glencoe Massacre, where dozens of members of Clan MacDonald died at the hands of men who had been received as guests in their homes. The politics behind both of these examples is, of course, long and complex, but given that both involved a violation of hospitality laws, which were a real and very serious part of medieval culture, the similarities are clear. Okay, so we can conclude that the Red Wedding was one masterful, if nasty, bit of writing that was clearly prefigured with hints and foreshadowings that became increasingly less subtle as the denouement approached. George drew on his own penchant for using a multi-level reveal for standing tropes on their head and for drawing inspiration from real life to present us with a gut punch the likes of which most of us have never read before. In fact, not a few readers actually put the series down following The Red Wedding, and George is fairly philosophical about that, recognising that not everyone reads fantasy series to experience his brand of hyper-realism. And we're going to wrap up our analysis of Rob Stark over the next two segments, where we'll do a bit of theorizing about what happened at the Twins and what comes next, address Rob's legacy, and engage in some might-have-been scenarios. 
But first, here's an audio collage of last words and memories from The Red Wedding and beyond. Rob, get up. Get up and walk out. Please, please save yourself. If not for me, for Jane. Now, Rob, walk out of here. And then the tall doors opened with a crash. And a freezing gale blew down the hall. And Rob came walking out of the night. Grey wind stalked beside, eyes burning. And man and wolf alike bled from half a hundred savage wounds. Up above, he heard drums. A light has gone out somewhere. But it was only a dire wolf, grey and ghastly, spotted with blood, his golden eyes shining sadly through the dark. The old gods are dead, with mother and father, and Rob and Bran and Rickon, all dead. Rob had died at a wedding feast. It was Rob she wept for. The dream he'd had, the dream Summer had had. No, I mustn't think about that dream. If he never talked of it, maybe he could forget he ever dreamed it. And then it wouldn't have happened, and Rob and Grey Wind would still be... Jane? Mother? Grey Wind? So that was a tapestry of final words, thoughts, and memories of Rob from his family. And thanks to Aziz and Ashea from History of Westeros, Jeff and Jim from Moors and Politics of Ice of Fire, and Mikhail from Vassals of Kingsgrave for helping us out with the voices. Those are all a song of Ice and Fire content providers that we've worked with and we highly recommend. And now we're going to move on to a discussion of some of the theories that have arisen following the Red Wedding. First is the idea that Rob did actually manage to leave Jane Westerling with child. Recall that Jane was left behind at River Run, along with her mother and her younger sister and brother. Also left behind was Sir Brynden Tully, who was charged with her protection. Fans have noted that when Jamie met with Lady Sybil at River Run, we see only one sister, and speculation has arisen that perhaps there was a switch with Elena taking her older sister's place and that Jane was being hidden away due to an advancing pregnancy. Yeah, around half a year had passed at that point since Rob rode away from River Run, and so any pregnancy would be quite far along and likely visible. So theories on this switch range from Lady Sybil betraying the Lannisters or hiding her daughter to save the unborn child or the Blackfish spiriting her away to protect her as he was obviously charged to do. We even came across one fairly wild theory that the Blackfish intended to father his own child on Jane and pass it off as Rob's. Well, that is a bit out there, isn't it? Considering Brendan Tully would be old enough to be the girl's grandfather. But it's all right for Walter Frey, so 
right? Ooh, <laughs> right, I don't think so. Okay, anyway, to counter the theories, we'd point to evidence that Sybil Westerling was giving her daughter a potion to prevent rather than aid pregnancy. The fact her entire mean is in keeping with her having made a deal with Tywin and that the girl Jamie sees is described as 15 to 16, while Elena Westerling couldn't be much more than 12, and the girl Jamie sees matches the description of Jane exactly. Except for her famous hips, which were described as, quote, good hips, for childbearing by Cat and, quote, narrow by Jamie. But apparently the description in A Feast for Crows was actually in error, as the hip reference has been removed from the new editions, which suggests to us that the author or editors wanted to remove the doubt that had arisen as a result of this glaring contradiction. In addition, Lady Sybil does mention her younger daughter when asking Jamie about the expected reward of marriages for all of her children, which hardly seems like something she'd do if she was trying to hide the fact that she was short one daughter. And while you can make an argument that Brynden Tully's stubborn resolve in flying the direwolf of Stark above the castle during the siege was a result of his secret knowledge of Jane's pregnancy, one could also argue that, because of Rob's obvious forethought into the matter, the Blackfish had some secret knowledge of Rob's intentions with regards to Jon Snow, and that explained flying the Stark banner. And regardless, we do think that the Blackfish will attempt to protect Jane by facilitating her escape as she's moved west with her family in Edmure in the Winds of Winter. And some of you may know that George has confirmed that we're definitely going to see Jane Westerling in the prologue of the Winds of Winter. So the chances of an attempted escape happening seem pretty high to us. And we've suggested that we may get to see the action through the eyes of Forley Prester, who is the commander of the detachment escorting Jane and Edmure West. So time will tell about that. But overall, we'd rate theories about a Jane Westerling pregnancy as not very likely, especially given the apparent retconning by omission of the hips description. Although we'd acknowledge that there are just enough kind of hints to make it a valid question. But we'd also add that that's probably the point, as even Jamie was aware that with a wolf in her belly, she could have proved more dangerous than the blackfish. And it's entirely in character for the author to sow ambiguity around something like this. Yeah, George seems to like to leave questions like this open, as it adds to the mystery and suspense of the story. And speaking of theories, Pregnant Jane isn't the only theory concerning Rob's death. There's one that we've actually mentioned in our Kyburn episode concerning Rob's head. That's extremely crackpot, but we thought we'd mention it again in case you missed it. Yeah, you may recall that in Bran's coma dream in A Game of Thrones, he dreams of a figure who many believe, including us, to be Gregor Clegane. Here's the line, 
Over them both loomed a giant in armour made of stone, but when he opened his visor, there was nothing inside but darkness and thick black blood. Yeah, the giant and stone armour both point towards the mountain there. Given that Cersei allegedly sent the mountain's head to Dorne, a raft of crackpots have arisen as to whether she sent a decoy or the real thing, and if the latter, whose head lies behind the visor of Sir Robert Strong? And while there are numerous possibilities, the most likely of which is that the head that went to Dorne belonged to someone other than Sir Gregor, the horrific idea that Sir Robert has Rob Stark's head is not without support in the text, believe it or not. Right, we looked at it and found to our surprise this passage from A Game of Thrones as Rob prepared for the Battle of Whispering Wood. It was dark among the trees where the moon did not reach, When Rob turned his head to look at her, she could see only black inside his visor. And, of course, this does match up pretty well with Bran's dream of darkness behind the visor of the giant. Okay, but how would Rob's head have gotten to King's Landing? Well, in the aftermath of the Red Wedding, Joffrey demanded it in council. I want Rob Stark's head, too. Write to Lord Frey and tell him. The king commands... I'm going to have it served to Sansa at my wedding feast. I want his stupid head. I'm going to make Sansa kiss it. Well, to be fair, it didn't really seem like anyone was paying any heed to Joffrey at that moment, as Tywin is also present and seemed to have things well in hand. But we guess it's just possible that someone listened and the head was sent on to the Red Keep, arriving only after Joffrey's own death, and then falling into the hands of Kyburn. And as we said in the Kyburn episode, the big plus for this idea is that it would be gruesome and absolutely shocking for the reader, and brings into question the theme of identity that George likes to toy with. The downside is the timeline, which makes it a bit problematic. Well, we urge you to make your own minds up and revisit our Kyburn episode for the full lowdown of all the various candidates. But we think you can probably rest easy. Despite some interesting angles here, the Rob's head idea ranks as an outsider, in our opinion. Yeah, we're certainly not going to discount it completely. But like Lady Gwynne says, we would consider it an outside candidate. Anyway, now for another look into the crackpot realm. Lady Gwynne has a theory about the Red Wedding that might have a pretty low likelihood of coming true, but in spite of itself, it actually has some interesting implications, both from a meta-perspective and in story. We also think that it's a fun crackpot, and it has gained some following, so we thought we'd share it with you here on Radio Westeros. Yeah, now this began a few years ago as an exercise to see if I could take some textual hints and, quote, prove that Grey Wind could have survived the Red Wedding. I thought there were some pretty neat hints about it from the other direwolves' perception of the situation that we see via wolf dreams to the actual logistics of the phrase sewing a direwolf's head onto a young man's body. And sure enough, I was able to weave a compelling enough argument which, combined with the idea that Rob may have warged into Greywind right before his own death, since his last words were Greywind, managed to almost be an argument that somehow Rob had survived, which you have to admit is pretty appealing. 
Yes, it is. To our scarred psyches, nothing would be better than Rob somehow surviving the Red Wedding. And the idea that Rob walked into Grey Wind as he died is hardly a new one in the fandom, with some fans even pointing out that if that's the case, there's then a high likelihood that Rob actually died twice, once in his own body and again in Grey Winds as he began his second life. That this warging happened seems very possible given Rob's final words to his mother and we have a strong hint that Grey Wind experienced Rob's death from Aya's point of view and the Ghost of High Heart's dream, both of which note a wolf howling with grief. Yes, all true, and as we noted earlier, Arya seemed to realize that her sensing Grey Wind wasn't true hearing, but something other. So there's that warg connection at work, not just between the wolf and their human, but somehow between the wolves themselves, with Arya sensing Grey Wind most likely via Nymeria. But regarding Grey Wind, what was interesting to me, from a metatextual point of view, was the sheer volume of hints that something strange was going on here. Rob already had a reputation for being a wolf man and turning into a wolf in battle, so the idea that the story about Rob's corpse having Greywind's head sewed onto its shoulders was a small folk's tale that grew in the telling, much like all those other tales, kind of made sense to me. Yes, so we pose. Could that horrifying story be some kind of exaggeration or falsehood? We do seem to lack actual credible witnesses, as we're going to discuss. And then there's the ghost, quote-unquote, POV in A Dance with Dragons, where he thinks about his littermates. So listen to this one very closely. Once they had been six... Five whimpering blind in the snow beside their dead mother, sucking cool milk from her hard dead nipples whilst he crawled off alone. Four remained, and one the white wolf could no longer sense. Yeah, and what's interesting about that is that it can be interpreted several ways. Either, quite simply, that there were six pups, and now only four remain, one of whom Ghost could no longer sense. But notice that Ghost considers himself as a part at the beginning. So the six pups were originally five plus one other, Ghost. What if the remaining four were simply four out of his five siblings? Or alternatively, it could be a simple math problem. Note the use of the word and here. Four remained and one the white wolf could no longer sense. Yes, so in that case... Four and one equals five, meaning five of the original six remain. So it's kind of a mind-boggling problem of grammar and interpretation here. And if you're head spinning, I don't blame you. I really think it's best to consider this by reading the actual passage yourself in A Dance with Dragons. But it does seem kind of ambiguous, and two of the possible interpretations leave it open for five wolves to still be alive. But what about the connection between Rob's corpse and a wolf's head? Remember in Danny's House of the Undying vision, she sees a feast of corpses. 
In a throne above them sat a dead man with the head of a wolf. He wore an iron crown and held a leg of lamb in one hand, as a king might hold a scepter, and his eyes followed Danny in mute appeal. Yeah, and we've mentioned this one already as a foreshadowing, and the dead wolf-headed king at the feast would seem to indicate Rob Stark. But the wolf head does not have to be interpreted literally, since the dire wolf is the sigil of House Stark, and a wolf head specifically was the device used by Rob on his own shield, as we noted. Dreams and visions are often figurative, and there are many instances of sigils representing characters. And then after the Red Wedding, we get the tales that Grey Wind's head was sewn onto Rob's shoulders after his death. And I wondered about the actual logistics of sewing a direwolf head onto the body of a 16-year-old. Yeah, direwolves can be as big as ponies, and Bran recalls Maester Lewin teaching him the difference between a wolf and a direwolf in A Game of Thrones. A direwolf had a bigger head and longer legs in proportion to its body, and its snout and jaw were markedly leaner and more pronounced. So when you think about it in those terms, sewing a direwolf head to a human body sounds almost like a story cooked up by someone who's never seen a direwolf. It's even possible that one of Nymeria's famed Riverlands wolf pack, whom we know to be in the area, was captured and killed, and its head used to desecrate Rob's body. Like we said, there's not really a reliable eyewitness account of the tale. The closest we get is Merritt Frey telling the Brotherhood Without Banners that his father was responsible for it. But he also tells them that his job at the Red Wedding was to get the Great John drunk enough so that he could be subdued. And in Kat's own point of view, we saw him matching the Great John cup for cup. Since Umber was roaring drunk, it's very possible that Merritt wasn't sober enough himself to be a credible eyewitness. So when we're told Greywind's head was sewn to Rob's corpse, perhaps we're not wrong to question it. Well, even if the phrase did desecrate Rob's corpse, we have no actual eyewitness to a dead Greywind. Kat hears him howling in her final POV, and Aya hears him as she arrives at the twins. After that, we have nothing but hearsay and rumour. The closest we get is again from Merritt Frey. Stark's direwolf killed four of our wolfhounds and tore the kennelmaster's arm off his shoulder, even after we'd filled him full of quarrels. So, it does stop short of a confirmation of death there. If anything, it does show that Grey Wind was alive after the phrase had tried to put him down. He's full of quarrels, but then again, he's still ripping off someone's arm. And this is the last we hear of Grey Wind. So while it seems like a long shot crackpot, there's the case. And so over to you listeners to decide. We think it's a fun one to consider. And what's wrong with some wishful thinking now and again? Did this convince any of you out there? Or has Lady Gwyn simply shown that you can make a decent case for just about anything in A Song of Ice and Fire? And if you liked it, you can find a fuller theory on Lady Gwyn's blog if you're interested. Okay, so moving on, probably the most interesting thing for me to come out of that exercise is the idea that someone else escaped the Red Wedding, someone of less importance to the plot, but who could still have an impact? 
Not Rob, not even necessarily Grey Wind, although there's nothing I'd like more than the direwolf without a Stark at some point in the future being united with Sansa, the Stark without a direwolf. But I'm wondering if someone who was close to both Rob and Grey Wind, and has been reported dead, but with very little proof or certainty, may still be alive. Yes, so... Grey wind being alive, you know, I consider a a long-off crackpot, but this one, I think, might be just a bit more reasonable. And of course, we're talking now about Reynold Westerling, Jane's younger brother, called the Knight of the Seashells by more than one observer after his seashell sigil, and a close companion of Rob's. Recall that Rob had wisely left Sir Reynold in charge of Grey wind in the kennels, to avoid bringing both man, who would be a reminder of Rob's betrayal, and beast, who was behaving in such a strange and disturbed manner into Lord Walder's hall. And in A Feast for Crows, Lady Sybil asks Jamie to investigate her son's fate, saying, Reynold was a knight and went with the rebels to the twins. If I had known what was to happen there, I would have never allowed that. Reynold knew naught of any of the understanding with your Lord Father. He may be a captive at the Twins. And then shortly after, we get this exchange between Jamie, Edwin Frey, and Walder Rivers. Tell me, is Sir Reynold Westerling amongst these captives? The Knight of the Seashells, Edwin sneered. You'll find that one feeding the fish at the bottom of the Green Fork. He was in the yard when our men came to put the direwolf down, said Walder Rivers. Waylon demanded his sword, and he gave it over meek enough, but when the crossbowmen began feathering the wolf, he seized Waylon's axe and cut the monster loose of the net they'd thrown over him. Waylon says he took a quarrel in his shoulder and another in the gut, but still managed to reach the wall walk and throw himself into the river. He left a trail of blood on the steps, said Edwin. Did you find his corpse afterward? asked Jamie. We found a thousand corpses afterward. Once they spend a few days in the river, they all look much the same. Well, curiously, this exchange kind of fails to convince the reader fully that Reynold Westerling is dead. In particular, it should be noted that the phrase are well aware of Westerling's sigil calling him the Knight of Seashells. This indicates that he was wearing his surcoat when he went into the river. Had they fished him out, even days later after bloat and rot set in, surely he would have been recognisable by that sign alone. Yeah, so it seems like we're left without a body for Sir Reynold, and we all know what that means. A living Reynold Westerling would not only fill out the group of signers of Rob's will, the rest of whom also curiously survived the violence, but he could fill any number of roles in a Riverlands resistance, or revenge, or even the ultimate rescue of his sister. There's even been a little hint from George about Westerling's secrets, and maybe an indication that there is a role for a good Westerling in the upcoming plot. He said, well, we shall see. But I think it's a mistake to generalize about the Westerlings, just as it would be to generalize about the Lannisters. Members of the same family have very different characters, desires, and ways of looking at the world. And there are secrets within families as well. So that's the theory that Reynold Westerling 
could be alive. And I, I think that, you know, it's reasonably plausible, okay? So now the final thing we wanted to discuss in this segment is something that comes up frequently in discussions about the Winds of Winter in general and the GNC specifically, and that is Lady Stoneheart's Drive for Revenge on House Frey. We've discussed this uh, a couple of times ourselves, and we think there's evidence that Lady Stoneheart is planning revenge on a level above that of an unthinking zombie who's just driven by a single objective. Yeah, and there's the fact that the Brotherhood Without Banners under her leadership seems to be actively searching for Arya, and they're caring for the orphans they find in the process at the end at the crossroads. She also seems to be coordinating spies and a flow of information. And then there's Rob's crown. Of course, it was with Rob at the Twins, and it wasn't seen again until a Jamie chapter in A Feast for Crows. Here's the passage. Sir Ryman came stomping up to the gallows steps, in company with a straw-haired slattern as drunk as he was. Her gown laced up the front, but someone had undone the laces to the navel, so her breasts were spilling out. On her head a circlet of hammered bronze sat askew, graven with runes and ringed with small black swords. So Ryman Frey, Lord Walder's heir, apparently had Rob's crown with him as he laid siege to Riverrun and allowed this self-proclaimed Queen of Whores to walk around in it. Disgusted with Ryman's conduct of the siege, Jamie dismisses him from Riverrun, telling him, See that you are not in camp when the sun comes up. You may take that queen of whores, but not that crown of hers. And obviously, Jamie recognized the crown for what it was and wanted to take possession of it. But then shortly afterwards, in a Brienne chapter, she meets the female leader of the Brotherhood Without Banners, who significantly had just returned from Fairmarket. The reader hasn't seen Lady Stoneheart since the epilogue of Storm Swords, and here's the description of her when Brienne meets her. Behind the table sat a woman all in grey, cloaked and hooded. In her hands was a crown, a bronze circlet ringed by iron swords. She was studying it, her fingers stroking the blades as if to test their sharpness. Her eyes glimmered under her hood. So the crown had somehow ended up with Lady Stoneheart, and just two chapters later, Jamie hears that Ryman and his entire party had been ambushed and hanged outside of Fairmarket, en route back to the Twins. And that's the last we see of Rob's crown, so we can assume it's still in the possession of Lady Stoneheart. What her intentions for it might be are up for speculation and guesses range from it somehow getting to John or even Sansa or playing a role in the quote-unquote Red Wedding 2.0. And as for that, it's pretty clear the phrase have been targeted by the Brotherhood Without Banners and we can expect they'll continue to be. When Merritt Frey was hanged by the Stoneheart Band, he pointed the finger at the architects of the betrayal. The Red Wedding was my father's work, and Ryman's and Lord Bolton's. Lothar rigged the tents to collapse and put the crossbowmen in the gallery with the musicians. Bastard Walter led the attack on the camps. They're the ones you want, not me. I only drank some wine. Yeah, and now Ryman is dead too. 
So how long until Lame Lothar, Bastard Walder, and Old Lord Walder himself are targeted? And we're pretty damn sure the end will come for Lord Walder, and that it won't be old age that takes him in the end. We even have an idea that originated from Kat's own thoughts in A Game of Thrones as she negotiated the crossing with Lord Walder. He was difficult to deal with in the best of situations, and this was a situation in which he felt he had the upper hand. In a moment of irritation, it says, Catelyn would gladly have spitted the querulous old man and roasted him over a fire. Yeah, so we've wondered if there's a fiery death in store for Lord Walder, and given the association of spits with food, if there could even be another serving of Frey in the future, perhaps the equivalent of Frey pies in the Riverlands, a revenge served aptly in the spirit of the northern legend of the rat cook, which embodies that pertinent issue of guest right. And combine that with the numerous fan theories about how a Red Wedding 2.0 will go down in the winds of winter, and our own conviction that the evidence points to organized plotting by the Brotherhood Without Banners in the Riverlands, and we remain hopeful, maybe even convinced, that winter is coming for the phrase, and Stark Tully vengeance will be in the air when the winds of winter hit the Riverlands. Yes, and talking of being hopeful of such things, we have to point out that we also expect George to show us, as usual, that vengeance isn't necessarily sweet. And whether he does that by making us sympathise for the victims or by showing us how vengeance can wreak havoc on more than its intended victims, or both remains to be seen. But we do look forward to it nonetheless, even if it's in a morbid sense. And now, before we move on to our final segment and a discussion of Rob's legacy, here's a word from today's sponsors. Listeners of Radio Westeros, are you having a get-together, a feast or a full-blown wedding? Then look no further than Frey, Frey, Frey and Frey Wedding and Party Planners. We can help you throw a party like you've never seen before. Your guests' heads will be spinning, we can assure you of that. We will take care of the food, everything from the bread and salt to the flowing red. Leave your pets outside, howling with excitement as our finest musicians play renditions of all the appropriate songs. We have five-star reviews on Yelp, and we can also entertain children by playing a game of Lord of the Crossing. Just remember to say, heh. Whether it's a white wedding, or a blue wedding, or any other colour of wedding that you can think of, our planning will leave your guests crying out and in stitches. Fray, fray, fray and fray wedding and party planners. It's a family affair. So, today's sponsors, Frey, 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 and Frey Wedding and Party Planners. And of course, we're all looking forward to the next wedding planned by a group of Freys, aren't we? Yes, we expect the Red to be running once again, don't we? Yes, we do. Uh, Maybe not quite the way the Freys expect it to, though. 
Okay, so now we're going to return to Rob's legacy. Since his siblings are all still alive, and we expect Rob's life and death will continue to impact their arcs through the rest of the story. While he lived, Rob represented the hopes of House Stark and the future for his siblings. Even for John at the Wall, the importance of redeeming their father's honor can't be understated, while for the others, Rob's success would have meant safety and the chance to resume their once bright futures. Yeah, we see that very clearly when Sansa thinks about Rob beating Joffrey. And Bran thinks, Rob will come back from the south soon, I know he will. He'll come back with all his banners and chase the Iron Men away. Meanwhile, Arya in the Riverlands, listening to Roose Bolton's meeting at Harrenhal with the Freys, who were suggesting Rob should surrender following the Lannister victory at the Blackwater, thought, he'll never bend the knee. Never, never, never. And her entire odyssey from Harrenhal to the twins was nothing less than an effort to find Rob, who would make everything all right for her at last. Yeah, altogether, the confidence his siblings placed on him during his life mirrors the level of despair they felt at his death. But as it happens, the events near the end of Rob's life and his death would have profound effects upon them all. And for starters, consider the obvious. Jon Snow has, we're fairly certain, been named Rob's heir. With rumors swirling of all kinds of potential plots to raise him up in place of his dead brother, Rob's death may prove to have a profound effect on John for reasons that go far beyond John's obvious grief at his brother's loss. In accepting the acclamation of his bannermen, Rob set a precedent in the North for the re-establishment of the office of King in the North that had lain dormant since Aegon's conquest. Yeah, and chances are at least some of those bannermen may attempt to proclaim Jon Snow legitimised as Jon Stark as King in the North. But as we mentioned in our North Remembers episode, we can't ignore the possibility that there are others who will want to use Sansa and or Rickon as candidates to advance their own agendas. We already see Sansa being used by Peter Baelish in The Vale, and he's relatively forthcoming about his plans to take the North for her using the Vale army. Throw in Wyman Manderley's possible support of Rickon as a candidate, and there's a chance that Rob's death might lead to some short-term conflict between rival Stark siblings. Well, as we've mentioned, we don't see that being a long-term situation, for, unlike the Lannisters, the Starks weren't raised to be in competition with one another. In fact, Ned's legacy to his children should provide them the mutual strength and closeness to rise above any such machinations in the long term. Add to that, we don't see too much of a future for poor Rickon, and we think it will come down to John and Sansa at long last finding common ground, and we think there are already hints that that will happen. Okay, so speaking of Sansa, it's worth pointing out that Rob's acclamation as King in the North probably has a lot to do with why she found herself married off to Tyrion Lannister in A Storm of Swords. Had the Lannisters not needed her claim to counter her rebellious brother, they might just as well have married her to Lancel or one of his brothers as Cersei considered in A Dance of Dragons. 
Of course, the Tyrell plot to spirit her away to Highgarden and marry her to Willis played a major role in the Tyrion marriage. But her claim was just as important to the Tyrells, since having Rob's heir would have been a powerful move by the Tyrells in their power play with House Lannister. Which actually brings us to another theme we wanted to address from Rob's arc, that of might-have-beens. Now, this is something we typically stay well away from in analysis because we try to limit speculation to things that are supported by the text, and by their nature, might-have-beens are generally not textually supported. But in the case of Rob and Cat, we see the characters themselves engage in this kind of speculation, enough that we thought it was worth talking about why George would use this device and what those alternate possibilities might signify. Yeah, after hearing of Sansa's forced marriage to Tyrion Lannister and unknowing of the foiled Tyrell plot to spirit his sister to Highgarden, Rob actually mentions to his mother, If I'd offered to wed Sansa to the Knight of Flowers, the Tyrells might be ours instead of Joffrey's. I should have thought of that. And this mirrors a thought Catelyn had when Rob returned from the crag with his new wife. If you had to fall into a woman's arms, my son, why couldn't they have been Marjorie Tyrell's? So we think George likes to show how near a thing fate can be. To paraphrase from Homer's Iliad, fate stands upon the razor's edge. And history is littered with examples of this type of what-ifs, something a history buff like George would be well aware of. We as readers can become quite fond of these scenarios too, in fact, since it's easy to project possible outcomes when you have a near-omniscient view of the board. But coming from the characters themselves, and in close proximity to our knowledge that a similar possibility had just been ripped from Sansa... We can see it as a device that works in tandem with George's penchant for allowing characters to almost make it to the finish line, like Rob almost getting back to the north, and Oberyn Martell almost defeating Gregor Clegane, Arya and Brienne just missing each other in Maidenpool, and even Ned Stark almost heading to the Wall and a reunion with Jon Snow. Yeah, George does love to toy with us like that. But as we said, it's a way of showing how simple things can change the course of history. And not just because he's evil. We even saw something similar when Kat went on her mission to Renly. What if Renly had accepted Rob's embassy? And what if Stannis and Renly had taken heed of her when she urged them to work together? As it happens... Both Stannis and Renly threatened Rob to some degree and refused to listen to Kat's sensible advice. But we saw a tantalising glimpse of what could have happened if that situation had worked out differently and the laws of the realm had united against the Lannisters. Well, we saw the change that can occur when lords unite against a king who has broken his feudal contract in Robert's Rebellion. There's no reason the same unity couldn't have been deployed against the Lannisters in the face of the truth of Stannis' accusations against Cersei. But this was a different time, and the lords didn't have the same strong bonds and a unifying leader as they had 15 years earlier. The name of the conflict says it all, the War of the Five Kings, and we'll be discussing this and much more in great depth in our next episode. Yeah, War of the Five Kings episodes coming up, and we're working on that right now. 
Finally, let's conclude by returning to something we started with back in the last episode. As Ned prepared to leave Winterfell, he told Cat to see to Rob's continuing education. If you recall, he must learn to rule and I will not be here for him. He must be ready when his time comes. So, when the time came, was Rob ready for leadership? We think it's pretty obvious he had a very talented military mind, as we'll discuss when we cover the War of the Five Kings, but he made some critical mistakes as well, such as failing to tell Edmure the extent of his plans when he marched west, and of course the Jane Westerling marriage, where, as we mentioned, he acted the honorable man, but failed as a king. So we're going to leave the final evaluation of Rob's military leadership, which includes the question of the decision to leave Edmure in the dark until our next episode. But we think we can conclude that overall Rob Stark acted in a way that befits the son of Eddard Stark, with honour and very little of the arrogance or hubris of youth that can be attributed to other young leaders in the series, like, say, Joffrey, Renly or Theon as examples. He made missteps out of a lack of experience, but as a leader, we think he would have probably made his father more than proud. At the centre of Rob's character arc is the boy-versus-man conflict that we hope we've outlined over the course of these two episodes. In the last episode, we started with Rob's practice yard conflict with Joffrey and traced his development into a leader of men. And we mentioned the parallels between Rob, the young wolf, and Daron the first Targaryen, the young dragon. Daron's ultimate defeat seems to have been blamed upon his youth, such as when Benjen Stark told Jon Snow, Your boy king lost 10,000 men taking Dorne and another 50 trying to hold it. Someone should have told him that war isn't a game. But while Catelyn worried the crown is crushing him, He wants so much to be a good king, to be brave and honourable and clever, but the weight is too much for a boy to bear. We don't think Rob's mistakes can be attributed solely to his youth. In fact, Darren Targaryen might have more in common with the, quote, Knights of Summer Catelyn observed in Renly's army, for although we can't say too much about his personality, we do know that Daron insisted on the invasion of Dawn, whereas Rob initially acted in defence of his family and his own and his family's lands. Yeah, and the difficult decision to execute Rickard Karstark is presented as a choice Ned might have made when Cat thinks he's only a boy and he had no other choice. So his youth is remarked upon, but it's not really the cause of the dilemma. In the aftermath, he quarreled with his mother over her hope for peace, which is actually rooted in her anxiety for his life. She thinks how he is playing the boy when his response to her reminder about Torrin Stark is met with anger and a reminder of his own that the Lannisters killed his father. And Kat's exact thoughts are, he is playing the boy now, not the king. And given their exchange, which so heightens Catelyn's anxiety for her son, involves a mention of the king who knelt. It brings us back to a thought she had in A Game of Thrones, as they discussed gaining the crossing from Lord Walder. Did you teach him wisdom 
as well as valor, Ned. She wondered, did you teach him how to kneel? The graveyards of the Seven Kingdoms were full of brave men who had never learned that lesson. Well, Rob certainly showed that he had the capacity to humble himself in his apology to Lord Walder, but in spite of his own strengths, it seems he ran afoul of the weakness of character of other men, men like Walder Frey, whose pride matched his desire to be on the winning side, and Roose Bolton, who saw an opportunity to not only be on the winning side, but also to perhaps gain the upper hand in the age-old rivalry between the Starks and Boltons. Wisdom is something that can be passed on from father to son, but often it must be honed through experience. Rob Stark showed plenty of capacity for being a wise king and leader, but perhaps in the end he lacks the experience to judge his bannerman. In A Game of Thrones, his mother thought she knew what sorts of men they were, each one. She wondered if Rob did. As Kat's anxieties for her son so often served to telegraph what was in store for him, we think this is an apt question to end with. And that about wraps things up for this episode. This has been our longest analysis of a character to date, even longer than Littlefinger, which was also split into two episodes. And interestingly, both Rob and Peter Baelish are non-point-of-view characters whose stories sprawl across many of the point-of-view chapters. So clearly, that leads to some great opportunities for analysis. And we're not even done with Rob yet. We'll be back soon with an episode all about the War of the Five Kings, where we'll address a lot of the military strategy and details of the actual battles that you may have missed here. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you've enjoyed our extended look at Rob Stark. This presentation ran at over five hours in total, so thanks for spending that amount of time with us. Please consider being a patron of the podcast. You can find us on Patreon if you want to see how that works with all the different levels of patronage and incentives available. When we return, we'll be talking all about the War of the Five Kings. It's a massive topic and is the action that underpins most of A Song of Ice and Fire, and we're excited to dig into it for you. And as usual now, it's time for us to give credit where credit is due. Thanks, as always, to George R.R. Martin for our Song of Ice and Fire, and for Kevin McLeod for allowing us to use his music in our production. And as usual, we'll end today with thanks for our patrons from the Valyrian Steel and Castle Steel levels. So thanks to Vasily, Fatima, Alexis, Amber, Jessica, Kurt, Joe, Chris K, June, John H, Sir Bobby the Knight tossed off the Valyrian stale chair, Melitza, Cinder of the Citadel, Joy B, Maltud, Yorlen, Eupacbule, Painkiller Jane, Jax Cato, Mary H of House Stark, Marja the Mage, Lady of the Frostfangs, Rusted Revolver, William James, Sadie's Monkey, Lord Brandon Brewer of Castle Blackrune, Sworn Alesmith to House Stark, Grandmaster of the Zithomancer's Guild and Keeper of the Buzz, and Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naki, the Alpha Patron. And thanks as well to The Red Woman, Arrow Doe, Anne, Sully, Christina, Clay, Demetrios, Edwin, Adam W., Faceless Miami Man, Jim, JT Was Here, Monaro Geek TV, Sir Matt of Wearside, Patrick, Scott, Tammy, Goldie Juke, Tim, Clarissa, Lady Storch, Ezra, Marcel, 
Van Sprite Magpie, Joseph, Jonathan, Kevin, Doc Deckard, Adam C., Danielle, Tana, Dennis, Elizabeth, The Orange Man, Lady Nightwind, Lachlan, and Yoan Longbeard the Well-Read, Wine Gobbler from Ultima Thule. As always, let us know if I pronounced any of your names wrong or if you have a nickname you'd prefer to use. Visit RadioWesteros.com for quick access to all of our podcasts. You can also find a link to our Patreon campaign, donate, and comment on our content there, or find us on YouTube. And of course, you can connect with us via Twitter, Facebook, Google+, or Tumblr. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you soon with The War of the Five Kings. Bye for now. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 